All right, welcome, Illusion of Consents readers, listeners, and watchers. Uh, I'm really excited today for our episode with Dr. Adam Urado, who's an OBGYN based in Boston, Massachusetts. He came on my radar through Dr. Roger McFillin on Substack, who also runs a great podcast. And I saw him on Twitter and on Roger's podcast, some clips uh, talking about SSRI use in pregnancy and certain dangers associated um, in that particular stage and in that particular area. And uh, I, th I think it speaks to the broader misinformation and uh, kind of ma manipulation and pharmaceutical capture um, that has become more and more salient over the past couple of years due to COVID. And as I uh, further my investigations into the mental health side of things and look at ADHD, antidepressant, anti-anxiety uh, anti medications um, that are increasingly prescribed for men and women across different ages. Um, this th this particular area is of interest to me, and uh, I'm really uh, looking forward to this conversation. So, uh, Doctor Urado, uh, thanks for being here. It's great to be here. I appreciate you having me on. Yeah. So uh, let let's start with uh, your credentials. Um, uh, just so people know um, who exactly you are and uh, what your qualifications are. Sure. I was uh, I was born in Framingham, Massachusetts. I'm a local Framingham guy and uh, grew up here in this community where I currently practice. I went to uh, Harvard College and then Harvard Medical School uh, and did my training in Boston at uh, Mass General Hospital and Brigham and Women's Hospital. And then I uh, that was my OBGYN training. So I'm initially trained with a residency in obstetrics and gynecology. And then after that, I did my fellowship in maternal fetal medicine, uh, which is a subspecialty focusing on um, moms and babies, high-risk pregnancies. Um, and now I, uh, I have a practice of maternal fetal medicine. I'm a full-time clinician, so I'm taking care of uh, pregnant women on a daily basis um, in, in my hometown, in my home community, which I think colors and shapes a lot of the way I think about these things. Um, and I also deliver babies. Uh, I like the action of labor and delivery. And, uh, and wow. so I, uh, I, I get into that, uh, that as well. Uh, I really enjoy that. Um, and, uh, yeah. And I have an interest in, um, a particular interest in medication exposures, um, in general, but with a particular focus on, uh, on moms and babies on pregnancy. Hmm. Interesting. I, I have a lot of, uh, just generalized questions about your, your uh, field as well. I mean, it's it's a it's a pretty important field. I mean, because you know the pregnancy and developing children. I mean, looking after them and you know being careful about what uh, the mother is doing, what she's taking, what kind of stress she's under. I mean, all of that affects pregnancy, right? Sure, absolutely, absolutely. And I think it's uh, it brings up a lot of critical issues about. Um, how we take care of uh, patients and just also how our society is functioning. Um, there's a quote, I don't know who said it, but you can sort of judge a society by how it takes care of its moms and babies and, and that sort of thing. And I, I think it's, uh, it, it's certainly an important area um, and, um, and an enjoyable one. I'm grateful that I'm able to, uh, to do this, uh, to take care of pregnant women and, uh, and share for the most part in their joys and uh, be able to do it in my, uh, in my hometown, my home community. It's a, it's a, it's a really nice thing. Mm. Yeah, so let's let's talk about the the hot topic which put you on my radar. So there's a study published in JAMA titled "Prenatal Antidepressant Exposure and Offspring Brain Morphologic Trajectory," 
and uh, it found, I'll just read this line quickly. In this cohort study of about 3,000 mother-infant dyads, uh, what's a dyad? That's the terminology we use to refer to the mom-baby pair. Okay. Uh, so in this cohort of, uh, of 3,000 mom-baby cohorts compared with no maternal SSRI exposure or depressive symptoms, prenatal use was associated with less cerebral gray matter in children that persisted from 7 to 15 years of age and greater increases in volumes of the amygdala and fusiform uh, gyrus in children that did not persist until early adolescence. And it says the meaning uh, is paternal SSRI use during pregnancy may be associated with altered brain development in offspring. So is this study um, the first of this kind that's found this kind of effect? And have there been uh, other studies? And, and why is this of uh, a particular significance to you? Sure. So to quickly answer that first question, this is not the first study showing this. Um, there's a lot of uh, research on the effect of antidepressants uh, and other medications uh, on the developing fetal brain. Uh, and this actually is an MRI study where they're looking at exposed and unexposed babies, exposed and unexposed in utero, and then following them up with MRI. And there have now been, by my count, there's been 10 MRI studies, uh, and they've all shown across the board uh, effects of prenatal or in utero antidepressant exposure. Um, I listed on, on a tweet I put out um, on my April 17th, it was April 17th of this year, I actually did a thread where I tweeted out nine of the studies uh, that, that I was up to at that point, the count of nine. So if anyone's interested in this research area, you can look at that tweet for the nine prior studies, and this would be the 10th. I just wanted to step back for one sec though, Rav, and just to talk about whenever I focus, so I have an interest in um, in medication exposure in pregnancy. The phrase I typically use is that medications are chemicals and chemicals have consequences. Chemicals have consequences for moms and babies. Um, I do want to just say, though, before we start off, that some people interpret studying medication exposure in pregnancy as being equivalent to uh, trying to blame moms for being on medication or pill shaming them or saying they shouldn't take medications. And, and, and that's absolutely not the case. And I think it's important to separate those things. So I think it's very important for everybody, patients and the community, the public, to get accurate information on the health effects of medications. So in order to get that accurate information, we need to study it, we need to research it, we need to look into it. And that's an important area for all of us to kind of be doing and learning about. But that's not at all the same thing as saying that someone doing that is trying to shame pregnant women or um, or uh, humiliate them, make them feel guilty. It, it's none of that at all. It's trying to provide accurate answers to pregnant women in the public for the basic questions that they ask. So all day, every day, I'm taking care of patients in my community and with medication exposure, SSRI antidepressants, but also others, they always ask, what effects does this have on the baby? So in order to get that information, we have to study it. 
but that's not pill shaming them. That's not that completely separate. I just want to make sure patients who get the information and I have many patients who get the information about medications and they decide to take medications, whether it be an antidepressant, uh, a blood pressure medication, a medication for epilepsy, and I take good care of them, I support them, et cetera. So I just want to make be clear about that. Studying side effects or studying chemical effects is not the same as, as, as pill shaming. So to answer your specific question, though, about this study in particular, this study is very important. It's a It's a... Before we get into this study, uh, so you were saying there's nine other studies, and did they have a similar conclusion? Did they find like the same association of, the, of SSRI exposure um, being potentially associated with altered brain development in offspring? That's right, Rob. That's right. So we're seeing that now this is a relatively new development in the field. SSRIs were first used uh, starting back in 1987. 87, 88, with the launch of fluoxetine or Prozac. So it's been about 35 years now, but it's only been, and, and they've been used in pregnant women for, you know, for, for that, that amount of time. It's been only recently that researchers have been using MRI to now follow up on the babies and ask the question, what effects are these medications having on the development of the baby's brain? And can we see that with MRI studies? And the nine that I listed, and you, and people can go look at that for themselves. And um, I'm happy for your feedback if people want to look at that list and tell me what they think. But they all show impact. They show chain, brain changes on MRI that we, that we can see on the MRI from antidepressant exposure during pregnancy. And uh, we, we want to get into specifics. Is, is that brain change, um, does that align with this study? And then if so, then we can get into what this study exactly found of what those brain changes were. Yeah, you're asking a good question. So um, it's it's kind of all over the board. Um, so there's the one, one paper that stands out in my mind, uh, Rebecca Nickmeyer from the University of North Carolina. She showed increased rates of a, a condition called Chiari-1 malformation. That's not what this study showed. Chiari-1 malformation is a different finding. Uh, what a lot of the studies are about is about brain connectivity, so doing functional MRI. And I'll be honest, I'm not a functional MRI researcher. I'm not a, a, an fMRI guy, so I, I wouldn't be the best to, to talk about how they do that looking for connectivity, but they're finding differences. They can basically do this functional MRI and see differences in the way the brains are behaving from the SSRI-treated kids versus the ones that weren't exposed to an SSRI. Now, this study, though, is not those two. This is different to answer your question. This study is looking at brain volumes. And, like, and, and just one other thing about the other nine studies, did all of them find like harmful brain changes or potentially benign ones or they don't know? Like, is, is it obvious that those brain changes are harmful? So the Chiari-1 malformation one, that would be considered like a harmful brain change. Some of the other ones are differences in connectivity, but I think not necessarily known. I mean, the, the, the one other thing you got to point out here is that the brain is incredibly complex. 
I don't know. I'm not, I'm not a neuroscientist guy, but I think that the brain has like about a hundred billion neurons in it, something like that. And there's with all the synapses, there's like a hundred trillion connections. It, I think it literally is on that scale. Someone can correct me out there if I'm getting the numbers wrong, but so it's really complex and complicated. So I think that trying to tease out, you know, what the, what the issues are for each study and figure out what's going on with the brain can be challenging, but they can look at gross things like the one MRI study that I was referring to that showed Chiari 1 malformation. That's an obvious brain malformation, significantly more common in the babies that are exposed to SSRIs. What what exactly do we mean by brain malformation, by the way? Uh, Just a, a uh, a structural difference in the brain. So not using functional MRI, um, not using looking at connectivity, but just looking structurally at the brain, they're seeing a a different shape to the brain uh, by virtue of the exposure to SSRIs. And then, Okay. And then this one is more like that, not using, uh, not looking, not doing functional MRI, um, but doing, uh, looking at volumes, brain volumes. And what they found was, as you described, a significant difference in the brain volumes for the children that were exposed to SSRIs during pregnancy. There was like a lot less gray matter there. And if you look at those numbers, Rob, if you've got it up in front of you, the difference in the SSRI group versus the others was whopping. Now, again, I'm going to plead a little bit of ignorance on the units because I don't know the details of how they're assessing the units on the MRI study, but the unit difference was like 20,000 in the SSRI group versus like 100 or difference in some of the other groups or 1,000. Like it's a whopping difference that there's finding. And you can actually see that from the figure that I tweeted, which is if you look at that figure, purple or blue is less brain volume. And you can really see dramatically that the SSRI exposed brains have a lot less brain volume. There's a real significant difference there. Yeah, so I just uh, can you see this on your screen? I can, yes. Yeah. yeah, so I just put the study up here. So yes, so point us to where we should be looking here. So on the results section, I guess I can I guide over. No, I'm not going to be. You're you're all, you're right there. The results section yep. there. You got it. Looking at the results. Yep. And uh, what you're seeing, uh, the difference is. Um, the, the gray matter. So children prenatally exposed to SSRIs had less cerebral gray matter. And okay. if you want to highlight that, it's like the, the fourth line down. Um, children prenatal compared right. with non-exposed controls, children prenatally exposed to SSRIs had less cerebral gray matter. And the difference or the amount less was 20,212.2 millimeters cubed for units. And that was highly statistically significant. And that persisted up until they were age 15. So the way the study worked is they looked at 3,198 mother-child dyads. They did MRI at age seven and they did MRI at age 15. And even at age 15, they're seeing that the group of, of teenagers now that in utero were exposed to SSRIs have significantly less, uh, less gray matter, less cerebral gray matter. 
that is a dramatic, uh, remarked difference. And then if you look at some of the other ones there, I was just pointing out the units. I mean, you'd have to have the researcher on or a researcher who, who understands this, but the other units just look like significantly less 168.3 millimeters cubed difference or 43.3 millimeters cubed with, with, um, with some of the other findings or some of the other groups. But that gray matter finding was was uh, was a dramatic finding of a of a highly significant difference in the the SSRI group. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. So they followed the 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 kids from seven to fifteen. Um. I I thought for whatever reason that um, they also they did some kind of research for when the kids were in utero. Um. But but I guess I guess you know the participants they enrolled were, you know, having used SSRIs during pregnancy or not, and then looked at. Uh, each different group from seven to 15 years of age for the child. No, no, Rav, you did good research on this. You did good research because this group, this same group published a study in 2012 that looked at, at in utero findings and they found the same thing, which is a smaller head size. So that's the same group. Hmm. Uh, it's a group from Rotterdam, the Netherlands doing a study and that study came out in 2012 uh, the lead author on that is uh, L. Maroon, and that comes uh, from the same group, the same Generation R study uh, from this Rotterdam cohort, I believe. Um, mm -hmm. And then it looked and it showed that when you do the in utero measurements, and this is something I do, I'm doing all day, every day, doing measurements of the baby's head, that the group exposed to SSRIs had uh, smaller head sizes. You can pull that up. I know you probably don't want to use your podcast doing literature searches, but if you find yeah. that paper is free, uh, that paper is free, full text. Anyone can look at it, and it's uh, it's from this same group back in 2012, and showing smaller brain sizes, smaller head sizes in the SSRI exposed babies, mm. fetuses, fetuses. Showing smaller head sizes. That's that's pretty crazy. <laughs> uh, that's quite uh, alarming. <laughs> This is concerning. Absolutely. This is concerning. Yeah. These are concerning findings. And what I point people to is I don't feel this is unexpected because if you just step back from it and you try to take a simple look at this, we know serotonin is a crucial neurotransmitter and cell signaling molecule. It helps to form the fetal brain. So the ser that serotonin, the serotonin system plays this incredibly vital role in that. If you put an SSRI into that, you're going to alter the serotonin system. SSRIs are synthetic chemical compounds. They're made in chemical manufacturing facilities. They go into the, the developing fetal brain and they alter or disrupt that serotonin system. So if the serotonin system is crucial for the formation of the fetal brain, and if SSRI antidepressants disrupt that system, you would expect to see effects. And we do. We do see these effects. We see these effects in study after study after study for animal studies. And then when they do it in humans, we're also finding effects uh, when, we, when we're doing these human studies. So this is not altogether unexpected. If you have a chemical that you're putting into a biological system, like the de rapidly developing fetal brain, and it disrupts an important system, the serotonin system, if it alters that system, you'd expect to see chemical effects. That's what chemicals do. They have chemical effects. Right. But the question is how much, like what, what kind of effects would you see? Like in grown adults, for example, using SSRIs, you know, what kind of effects might you expect versus, you know, mothers that are, that are carrying uh, infants? 
Yeah, this is a great question. And because um, I think even adult brains are probably active in terms of remodeling and formation of synapses, et cetera, uh, not to the extent or level that we see with the fetal brain. Um, but can that be occurring in the adult brain? I would say, sure. It's not my area of expertise. I, I focus more on, uh, on moms during pregnancy and babies and development of the fetal brain. But I would say, yeah, for sure, that there's going to be some, uh, some alterations in, in effect when you're disrupting that serotonin system right right so uh again in this study the the major finding is that uh compared with non-exposed controls children prenatally exposed to ssris had less cerebral gray matter particularly with within the cortical limbic circuit which persisted up to 15 years of age uh so for people who don't know including myself um what exactly is cerebral gray matter and why is it dangerous i mean is it clearly dangerous or potentially dangerous for um there to be less of that which is what uh, the study is saying yeah uh, the rudimentary way i think of thinking of it is the gray matter is a sort of the most active part sitting at the top of the brain as opposed to a lot of the lower centers and um and if this is really important people will refer to like your gray matter as being the you know the 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 vital human structure or the brain. I'm sure neurologists, you can have a neurologist come on and talk to you more about gray versus white matter, but, but it's, it, it's crucial. It's crucial um, for the, for, for brain development and brain function. And this study is, is definitely showing a, a difference in the impact of the drug. Is it clearly harmful to have for something to cause less gray matter? Uh, I would say yes. We we know or we talk about certain drugs. I believe alcohol, uh, other exposures. I think that when people do MRI studies, and I'm getting a little bit out of my field because I'm not a neurologist, but when people do other studies in this area, you see pathology associated with a loss of gray matter uh, in terms of the function of the brain. Mm. Okay. I have a rudimentary, I have a, I have a maternal fetal medicine and obstetrician's way of thinking about this, but I yeah. think just as a simplistic way of looking at it, you'd say uh, if you've got something shrinking the gray matter of your brain it, or, or, or showing uh, an impact on the gray matter, uh, lowering the volume of that, is that presumed to be harmful? I'd say, yeah, that's presumed to be harmful. That's, that's a concerning, a concerning impact on the brain. Yeah. And, and what do you think could potentially be the long-term ramifications of that is there any indication yeah that's a great question i mean that's the sixty-eight thousand dollar question we're seeing in the studies impacts uh it's a hard thing to study rav because um so many other things come into play when you're trying to study like how children are doing as they grow up because there are issues with the how they're being raised, et cetera. So trying to just tease out the impact of the uh, drug becomes challenging. But when people have looked at this, they have found that children who were exposed to SSRIs in utero do appear to have some uh, deficits. Some of the studies have showed uh, motor trouble with motor findings, with coordination and other motor findings. Uh, language acquisition, trouble with language acquisition, that's been shown. And there's um, studies that have shown trouble with emotional regulation. There's also studies linking it to autism, um, ADHD, uh, and, and, and other uh, diagnoses. It gets hard, though, as you know, with, when you start getting into diagnoses like autism, ADHD, etc., um, trying to study that 
over long periods of time and then tease out the initial exposure becomes challenging. But again, I, I just simplify it, which is my, my job or my interest here is counseling patients and getting the information out to pregnant women in the public about the effects of the medications. And so the, the it, it, this kind of a study shows to answer that question, which patients want answered, can this impact my baby's brain? You could say, yeah, we've got evidence from the studies that being on these drugs during pregnancy can impact the developing the development mm-hmm. of the baby's brain. Right. And one more thing on the specifics um, there, I've also highlighted here in the study. And, and by the way, this uh, we're, uh, this podcast is available in video format for our paid subscribers, but everyone else can listen for free. So if anyone wants to, to watch this, they'll have to subscribe. Um, the, the, uh, I've highlighted here that there's a, uh, children exposed to SSRIs prenatally showed a steeper increase in volumes of the amygdala and a fusiform gyrus from seven to 15 years of age. Is that a particularly noteworthy finding as well? Yeah, it was statistically significant. I, I'm, I'm, I, I'm thinking, and I'm not. I don't know this, but I'm thinking it might be representing like catch-up growth. The idea that they're catching up at that point, so that there was some hit that showed a, a reduction in volume uh, by age seven. But then when they look, it looked like there was catch-up uh, between seven and fifteen. So that they're showing some catch-up in those areas of the brain. Mm. Right. But a, a, a steeper increase in amygdala volumes, that's also potentially harmful for long term, right? I mean, amygdala is associated with fight or flight or you know, the fear response that the brain has. So if you have increased volumes of the amygdala, uh, you might predict that there might be higher levels of uh, of anxiety or sympathetic activation, potentially. I hadn't thought of it that way, Rob. I think you're raising a, 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 a possibility. I was seeing it more as that there was impact from the exposure during pregnancy that led to maybe a reduction in size there. And then they're seeing this as well, there was catch up. But you may be right that it may not just be like looked at as a benign thing or a good thing that, oh, this is just catch up. It may actually be problematic that there's a difference in this group that's showing this, uh, the, the larger size in this area of the brain. I think when we try to tease out exactly what that means, like for the child, like, well, is this worse right. fight or flight or not? I think it gets complicated. I think, yeah, yeah. I think it's, it's challenging. Sorry, you said, so you said reduction, but I was quoting the study. Study says steeper increase in volumes of the amygdala. I think, did, I think you said reduction in, in amygdala volumes. No, what they're looking at here in this particular sentence, Rob, is from seven to 15. So okay. I think that they're sh- they're showing uh, increase between points uh, age seven and age fifteen. They're showing an increase here. We both agree on that. I'm seeing it the same way right. you are, um, but it may have been representative of an of like an earlier reduction. The fact okay. that there was a reduction and then and then you're seeing catch up because they talk about that. Um, they they talk about that later in the paper that there's evidence of catch up, but there was not that same evidence of catch up growth in the overall gray matter of the brain. Okay. Did that make sense? Yeah. Yep. Uh, And in terms of the conclusions, you know, they say the results of this cohort study suggests that prenatal SSRI exposure may be associated with altered developmental trajectories of brain regions involved in emotional regulation in offspring. You know, so they they very carefully use the word may 
Um, but, but from your reading, this is statistically significant. It's not just a may, like it's, it's pretty clear to you that, that this is actually an effect rather than potentially uh, some kind of mismatch or some kind of uh, statistical anomaly. Yeah, the reason why they couch it like that, Rav, is because it's it's not a randomized controlled trial. It's an um an observational study. And so an argument can be made in these observational studies, and this is the argument. I'm glad we get to talk about this because this is an argument that gets made again and again. Uh, which is that studies like this you can't trust or you should read cautiously because of confounding by indication. So you'll hear this again and again as a critique of this literature. People will say, well, the women that were on the SSRIs have a deeper depression or a different depression, and the differences that you then see in the babies or in their children is a reflection not of the effect of the antidepressant, but an effect of the underlying depression. It's a different group. That's called confounding by indication. So anyone who writes these studies, and you'll see this, will often couch it that way and say that it may. They, they write in their key points, um, I'm reading also from my copy, maternal SSRI use during pregnancy may be associated with altered brain development in the offspring, meaning that, that they're leaving themselves a little bit of an out with this issue of confounding by indication and possibly other confounding factors. The reason I don't find that argument compelling at all, and I think that's a straw man argument, and I think it's false, and I think to some extent it's like profit-driven propaganda, basically, to to, to kind of mask the effects of these uh, uh, medications on, on developing babies. The reason I don't buy the argument is that we're seeing similar things when we do the animal studies. So if you think about this, just theoretically, you've got a chemical that disrupts the serotonin system, you put it into a developing fetal brain, you'd expect to see impact because that's what chemicals do. Then you do animal studies and you see impact. The animals that are exposed to the SSRIs have impacts on the developing brains of the offspring. So it's a chemical effect. Then when it's done in humans, a study like this, they say it could be confounding by indication. But that seems just like such a, an odd excuse to try to keep raising because we know it's a chemical effect from the basic science of it, and from the animal studies. The animals that they're doing these studies in aren't, aren't differentially depressed. It's not an impact of the depression. It's a direct impact of the chemical exposure. That's what's going on. And so then when you see the same kind of findings in the human studies, it's just uh, distracting and um, almost absurd to, for, to continue to say, well, it must be confounding by indication because that completely dismisses the actual chemical effect. If it's all confounding by indication, if the reason why study after study after human study keeps showing an impact of the SSRI antidepressants on the developing babies and on the pregnancies, if it's all confounding by indication, then why do we see the same impact in the animal studies? Like, why isn't there any impact, a chemical impact? I mean, it can't, it's a, it's, a, it's a synthetic chemical compound. There has to be some chemical impact. It's not water that we're giving to the pregnant women that they're taking. So there's likely chemical impact. We see it in the animal studies. When we see it in the human studies, it's likely a chemical effect and not simply confounding by indication. Mm. 
Did that make sense? Yeah, yeah. No, yeah. Uh, and, and, and what exactly do we find in the animal studies? What are the results of those when you give animals SSRIs? <laughs> there have been lots and lots of animal studies. I, when I, my, my lecture on this, I used to say that the animals need to start protesting and saying, stop exposing us to SSRIs during pregnancy because we know it's having a harmful impact. There's so many animal studies on this, Rob, showing pregnancy loss, showing um, malformation, showing effects on the pregnancy, and then they look at behavior, and the, the behavior is different. Um, when they look at exposed offspring, when they do rat studies, mice studies, rabbit studies, if you take a group of a, a hundred rabbits or rats or whatever, however they do it, divide it up 50 and 50, expose half of them during pregnancy to the, uh, to the SSRI, the other half to placebo, you see changes in behavior. They don't behave the same. There's impacts on the developing offspring. And this would be expected because of the, the logic of it or the basic science of it. You're putting a chemical, a synthetic chemical compound that comes out of a chemical factory, you're putting that into a group of rats or mice or rabbits that need a functioning serotonin system to form, form their brain. You're putting that in during the development and then you get brain impacts. And we see that in study after study. There, there are too numerous I can send you the, 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 the references or we can post them somewhere, but they're just too numerous. Um, as I said, uh, the, the rats and rabbits and mice must be thinking like, you don't have to keep running these studies. We know these synthetic chemical compounds, the SSRIs, the antidepressants affect the developing brain. We know this from these animal studies. Right. And in, in terms of the logic of... Um, why you know the group like so you're, you're giving two different groups uh so the, there's the ssri group and then the other group is also suffering from depression right in these studies you're comparing to two groups of depressed women one given ssris and the other not correct yeah that's the easiest way to think about it the easiest way to think about it is compare depressed on ssris versus depressed not on ssris and then a lot of these studies will have a third group which is a control group which is neither neither depressed nor ssri exposed to mm. try to get at this issue of confounding right and and yeah well yeah and so you know that our counter argument that gets raised sometimes i mean theoretically there could be some i mean Initially, what I thought was, well, if, if you're comparing depressed women on SSRIs versus non-depressed women on SSRIs, you might have a bigger, you know, difference of some kind. Um, but if you're just comparing two groups of depressed women, I mean, unless there's reason to believe that the ones that are getting SSRIs are somehow radically different in their approach to life and what they're taking and what kind of stress they're under, uh, I mean, all of those could be potentially contributing factors, right? Uh, right. So this is the argument. Whenever you do, uh, whenever you're doing a non-randomized trial, so the beauty of a randomized controlled trial is that these other factors should shake out and you should have roughly equivalent groups. That's why people love the randomized controlled trial, because by randomizing, you should be able to get roughly equivalent groups um, on, on various factors. That's never been done with antidepressant use during pregnancy. People don't think it's ethical to take a woman 
offer SSRIs or put one on an SRI who doesn't want to be on one. So it, it's just, it's never been done. And so you can always point to this literature. You can always point to the human literature and say, confounding by indication, confounding by indication. And this is what, you know, often gets raised. This, by the way, is, you know, something that you can look at an argument like that, the confounding by indication argument. You can look at that and take it at face value and say that the people making it are acting in good faith. And I'll buy that. But you can also make that argument if you're trying to spin, if you're doing what I would call corporate spin or pharma spin. Like if I'm a pharmaceutical industry uh, uh, strategy guy and I say, what am I going to do about this literature? I've got all of these human studies showing poor uh, outcomes in the SSRI treated group. You, you need some way to challenge that, to cast doubt on that literature. It was like in the cigarette industry used to say doubt is our product. They wanted to, in the early days when cigarettes were very profit, highly profitable, they, they still are, but when they're highly profitable and people weren't sure about the health effects, they, they tried to create doubt around this idea that there could be health effects. In the same way, you can create doubt around the, the, this literature and say, well, it's all confounded by confounding by indication and you really can't trust it and there may not be any impact. But I think that that's more corporate corporate spin than anything. I mean, the human studies are supporting the animal studies, which supports the basic science. This, this looks like a chemical yeah. effect that we're yeah. seeing. And, and, and do you see a lot of that corporate spin? Do you see people, I mean, potentially media figures or people who are representatives of the pharmaceutical companies selling SSRIs make those kind of arguments? Have you ever run into that? Sure. I think that, you know, for years there have been key opinion leaders in this area of SS of antidepressant use during pregnancy. There have been lots of key opinion leaders in this area being paid large sums of money by the antidepressant makers who have made this confounding by indication argument. Yeah, absolutely. And as I said, you Everybody has to, you know, look into their own conscience or soul. They could say, look, I make that argument completely um, ethically and legitimately, and I believe it, and it's not spin. And, you know, that that's their, that's the story, and they're sticking to it. But that's what, what we're seeing. We're seeing a lot of this. And what it does is it creates confusion for the public. It creates confusion for the public. Um and, and confusion for patients, and it obstructs people trying to get correct information. You've got to remember, Rob, the antidepressants are have been hugely profitable, and one of their key groups, one of their key profit centers, maybe the main profit center, is the women of childbearing age. So I'm sure that if you're an antidepressant, a pharma strategist, you'd want to take the issue of what kind of effects it has in pregnancy off the table because you don't want a reason for a young woman of childbearing age to not get started on these things or not to be on them. And so I'm sure that it's, it's, it's strategic to some extent. You, you'd want to have this uh, illusion of consensus, as you say, that they're safe and that there's some studies on it that might show, you know, harm or this or that, but you can't trust those studies, and so that the people will continue to to start women on them, and uh, um, and it won't affect sales and profits. Right, and, and what percentage um, of pregnant women are on SSRIs? Do we have that figure? 
Yeah, the number's all over the place. It depends where you're looking. Um, the rough figure people will use is 8 to 10% in the United States, 2% in Europe, but it really depends. People have teased this out. There are state-by-state -state differences in the U.S. In my population here, I probably see it more running on the order of 3 to 5%, I'd say, but the number people will often give for the U.S. is 8 to 10%, and, uh, and in Europe, more like 2 to 3%. Yeah, and, and that's significant. I mean, if these studies... Um, are aligned with reality, which they seem to be, and they seem to be quite compelling, then we're potentially, you know, harming a generation. I mean, if it's up to eight to 10%, uh, and you're having reductions in cerebral gray matter, and uh, the implications for the amygdala and all of that, um, there could be some potentially harmful consequences of that, that we don't fully understand, right? Because like you said, we don't really fully comprehend the, the long term consequences yet. For sure. No, absolutely. If you just do the math, you just do the math, 8 to 10%, there's 4 million births per year in the United States. And we've been using SSRIs uh, for the last 35 years. You do the math, that's a lot of exposed, uh, a lot of exposed offspring, a lot of exposed babies, now children, now teens, now adults. Uh, you know, for, for sure, that, that would have a, that would have a huge impact. Which is why I think it's really vital that the information gets out there to the public to sort of understand what the literature is showing, what the animal studies show, what the basic science shows, what the human studies show. And then, as I said, patients can then make up their own mind. My goal in this, and I think a lot of people's goal, is to try to get the information out there. But then the patient needs to decide what they want to do. So... I think that there's 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 two separate questions with this, and I think you need to make sure in your own head and with patients taking care of them, which I do every day, that you keep it separate. One is a question is, what is the impact of the SSRIs on the developing fetal brain? That's a good question. It's a scientific question. It's one that needs to be researched. It's a question patients are asking. So we've got to ask that. We've got to answer that. The second question, though, is should an individual patient stay on her SSI during pregnancy or start an SSRI or come off. Now that question is a different question than question one. And that needs to be explored patient by patient. You need to discuss it with the patient. You need to understand where she's coming from, what her history is, what her mental health history is like. And, and, and that's a separate question. So those are two completely different things. And if the patient at the end of the day decides that her answer to question two is to stay on her medication, I think you support her. I, I do this every day in my office with the patients I take care of in, in my home community. And uh, you take care of them. You don't pill shame them. You don't make them feel bad about themselves. And you support them and provide them with good, compassionate care. That's, I think, the way to manage that. But those are two separate questions. What tends to happen in this area is people think that if you start talking about question one, which is what the scientific literature or what, what science shows about the impact of the antidepressant on the developing brain, if you start talking about question one, then it means a certain answer to question two, how you're going to take care of a patient. But it doesn't necessarily mean that it helps to inform that, but it, those are two separate things. And I think it's important. And I think we all as a human community should be focusing on answering question one because we're exposing lots and lots of developing babies to these things so we really need to ask ourselves like what is this doing what are the effects and uh, and how is this working what's the impact here
Yeah, and again, on the long-term consequences uh, question, I uh, I think you listed off a few potential uh, side effects. Is is there are there some that are more clearly established than others? I think you listed off um, autism, ADHD. I mean, obviously, there's a big difference if the reductions in cerebral gray matter are strongly linked to autism versus ADHD. Very very different problems with very different ramifications. Is there any indication of what um, the most likely long-term side effects are for that child, or do we just not know much? Yeah, my reading of the literature is that there are impacts, but trying to exactly boil it down is hard. This, this is, you know, these are these. This is a tough area to study, even even at the. It, at the within pregnancy level uh, to try to do these studies. And I think a lot of the studies are confounded, not necessarily by indication, but are by misclassification. So when they do these studies in pregnancy, a lot of times the group that they call SSRI exposed is the group that has had one prescription of an antidepressant during the pregnancy, look for a prescription. They call that the SSRI group. But I do this all day, every day, a lot of patients get a prescription, but then they never use it. They're never using it. So if you call that the SSRI group, you're going to confound your study that way. So from my standpoint, the impacts might actually be worse than what we're seeing. With that being said, in pregnancy, we're seeing some things that are clear. Like it looks like clearly the drugs are linked to preterm birth. Uh, there, there, there's clear evidence that, and preterm birth has consequences for the baby coming out too soon. We see that the drugs are clearly linked to postpartum hemorrhage. There's a warning on that in the United Kingdom, and there's now the FDA changed the labels quietly apparently this got basically i think only no no publicity from the fda the it got covered by one newspaper i think in the us that that quietly the fda changed the labels on the ssris to note that it increases the risk of postpartum hemorrhage in women um so we see that clear we see the relationship to hypertensive disorders of pregnancy like preeclampsia there's that association the big one that's a note that's a no-brainer here that we see for sure in pregnancy is the impact on the babies immediately after birth. So that, and this is going to relate to long-term, Rav, I'm going to tie it together. So when you look at, if you say, well, what's the big difference you see, um, Adam, between SSRI-exposed pregnancies and not, the big whopping dramatic difference that you see in the groups is with this condition called poor neonatal adaptation or neonatal behavioral syndrome. That difference is whopping. You see, the babies that come out when the moms have been on SSRIs are much more likely to have jitteriness, crying, difficulty feeding, odd motor behaviors. Um, they can have seizures, trouble breathing, persistent pulmonary hypertension of the newborn. There's really significant differences. And that rate people have quoted up to date, which is a common text online textbook, quotes that rate up as high as 85%. I mean, it's very high in the SSRI-exposed kids. Initially, people thought it was withdrawal, but we see it right off the bat. So it's more likely an effect of the drug on the fetal brain. But if you think about that, Rob, for a sec, right? If you've got this whopping rate of effects that you see in newborns that come out that are born to SSRI-exposed moms, it means that in utero, they're getting those effects ongoing. And so 
this is concerning. If you see it when they come out, this real big difference in, 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 in effects in the newborn period, this thing we call poor neonatal adaptation or newborn withdrawal syndrome, that tells you that there's ongoing impact there. And, and there have been studies that have shown this. There's a study from Mulder back in 2011 doing ultrasound studies of fetal movements. The fetal movements are different in the group that, that the moms are getting uh, SSRIs. Those babies aren't as quiet uh, during their non-REM sleep as they should be. And there's studies on newborns doing EEG, uh, EEGs on the newborn brains um, that show a significant difference immediately when they come out. So we are for sure seeing this, but to try to then tie it to be able to answer your initial question, which is, well, what does that look like in terms of autism or emotional difficulties when they're in their 30s or 40s or middle age? That gets really complicated. Right, right. And these studies that you're referring to they're comparing um, ch children of depressed women in each group. So one group, again, with SSRIs versus not, as opposed to, you know, one group of SSRI, um, women on SSRIs who are depressed versus just women who aren't suffering from depression, because you know, that could be the big confounder, potentially, if you look at it that way. Um, if the only, if the differences are depressed versus non-depressed, and, you know, one could say that the depression is what's causing you know, the women to have lower or the babies to have lower quality sleep, more difficulty with emotional regulation, etc. Sure. No, they try to make that effort to, to, again, correct so that you're looking at depressed on SSRIs versus depressed uh, not on SSRIs. The yeah. study for people who are interested, it's, it's one of, I think, the more interesting studies out there. I'm interested in it, obviously, because I do, um, I do ultrasound uh, all day, every day. But if you look at um, Mulder, is the lead author on it. Um, I'm trying to pull it up here. Uh, the, okay. the, lead, the lead author on the study is, uh, is Mulder, and it's from 2011, and it's an ultrasound study looking at fetuses um, in, in, in the in utero effects of, uh, of SSRIs. Mm. Um, and, and they do look at those different groups, and what they found, particularly in the groups that um, were exposed to uh, moderate to high doses um, of the SSRIs, they see differences in, uh, in behavior. So this group, I'm pulling it up here. If I look distracted, Rob, I'm pulling it up on my yeah. own uh, desktop. So sure. this group looked at um, a medicated group, 96 women who took SSRIs throughout pregnancy, um, and they compared them to uh, a group who was on SSRIs but then discontinued them uh, of 37. So that would be like the depressed but not on medication. And then they looked at a, 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 control, a complete control group. And the group where they saw the significant changes in terms of motor activity, uh, they particularly exhibited disrupted emergence of non-rapid eye movement sleep during the trimester. And this was characterized in these babies by continual bodily activity and thus poor inhibitory motor control during this state. So the babies, when they should have been resting, were showing this continual bodily activity. And those were the babies that were being exposed to uh, the SSRIs. That's a paper from Mulder back in 2011, uh, an ultrasound study. Mm. Interesting. And you mentioned preterm births. So is there a clear connection between SSRI exposure? and preterm births? 
Yeah, from my reading of the literature, and I think there's agreement there. I think you'd even find some of the key opinion leaders from pharma that say, look, this is what the literature is showing. We're seeing connections between um, between uh, uh, SSRI or antidepressant exposure during pregnancy and preterm birth. Mm. I feel like that's been well established. Again, anyone can look at this literature and say, well, they're not correctly correcting for confounding by indication. It's not a randomized control study. But there have been so many studies now looking at the effect and finding the effect, finding increased preterm birth in the SSRI group. Mm. And, and that's a pretty alarming finding. I mean, preterm birth, I mean, that can have many implications, many harmful implications for the overall health of the, of the child. Sure, absolutely. Preterm birth is a, is a biggie. It may be the biggest problem in our field. If you you know if you're looking to say, well, what what are the big things that are big problems in maternal fetal medicine and obstetrics today? You'd say things like postpartum hemorrhage, maternal rising maternal death, and preterm birth for sure. Because preterm birth is what accounts for the the, the lion's share of uh, of neonatal morbidity and mortality. Babies coming out too soon. Mm. Mm. And. Um, in terms of, uh, so I'm just going to pull up here, um, Roger McFillin, um, he had you on his podcast as well. And I believe th these are the effects that you told him. So recommendation of antidepressants during pregnancy and postpartum fails to recognize critical consequences such as birth defects, drug withdrawal, increased risk of suicide, emotional numbness, decreased empathy and impact on bonding. Is that is that all um, a, a good reflection of the research in your view? So that's Roger's list, Rob, and kind of gets into some of the mental health aspects there for mom. Um, okay. I think that, uh, yeah, my list would be things like uh, birth defects, miscarriage, preterm birth, low birth weight, postpartum hemorrhage, preeclampsia, newborn behavioral syndrome. Um, that's, you know, more of the list I'm focusing on from the obstetrical standpoint. Uh, he's, mm. that's his list about, uh, uh, yeah, maternal okay. or mental health gotcha. effects. And, and you, so you mentioned miscarriages. Is there a clear connection with that as well? People argue the miscarriage literature. So people argue that that's a little bit mixed, but miscarriage is harder to study just because of the way the studies work. Um, but we see increased rates of pregnancy loss in the animal studies. And we see it, I think, in the well done human studies. But if you were to go and, and look and if you were to explore this yourself, you'd find a mixed literature on that. More mixed, for example, than the preterm birth literature, more mixed than the newborn behavioral syndrome literature. The newborn behavioral syndrome literature is clear. I mean, the babies that are exposed to SSRIs have much more newborn behavioral syndrome. What, the, what does that mean? The newborn behavioral syndrome is what I was talking about earlier. Uh, poor neonatal adaptation, the, the jitteriness, the crying, the trouble feeding, the difficulty within the first 24, 48, 72 hours, etc. Mm. Or first two weeks, I think I can define that. Gotcha. Okay. And, and in terms of how the the in industry has been functioning and how SSRIs have been promoted, um, what, what what does that look like right now? Is there like widely people in your position, or like is it people in your position, or would it be psychiatrists that would be prescribing SSRIs in pregnancy? Like, wh what's the state of the situation on that front right now, in your view? 
it's kind of all over the board, Rob, as far as who's prescribing. Um, it's often the PCPs, the patient's PCP. Uh, it can be okay. a mental health professional. Sometimes it's the OB. Uh, a lot of the patients I see, though, were started on these uh, a while ago. They're, they get started a while ago, which is why I think it's really important that this message and this is another big key point I would flag is that this discussion really is not best had during pregnancy. This discussion is not best started at 12 weeks when I often see patients. This really is a discussion that women need to have women of childbearing age, this sort of knowledge or message has to go out to women of childbearing age and society more broadly so that people understand this. A lot of the patients will get on these when they're in college or after, and then they'll be on them for uh, four, eight, 12 years or more, and then they have trouble coming off of them. We know for some patients, it is very difficult to come off of antidepressants. It's very difficult to come off of these medications. And so they end up staying on them. And so you end up then getting pregnancy exposure based on a decision that was made long before pregnancy was even in anyone's on anyone's radar, which is why I think this sort of discussion needs to be had uh, more broadly in society. Again, not to say that pregnant women or women of childbearing age shouldn't get good treatment or should be ignored or their mental health issues should be ignored. It's none of that. Yeah. Women of childbearing age need good care, compassionate care, good treatment. They, if they have depression, anxiety, anything, they need to be it, it cared for, well cared for. So this is not an argument to to not yeah, yeah. take seriously any of that. Yeah. But it's a, it's an argument to inform women of childbearing age and the providers that of what the effect of these medications are and that a decision made at point one, which might be college, which might be grad school, which might be whatever, can then have an impact on their pregnancies down the line. Mm. And do you see any issues with SSRIs being prescribed in this stage? Like, do you think physicians are too reckless or not taking enough cautions when prescribing SSRIs during pregnancy? Like, what's, what's your assessment right now of where things are at with how doctors are dealing with patients in pregnancy? and their depression and prescribing SSRIs. So this gets into these uh, sort of the, the second question that we we're talking about. The first question is what are the chemical effects? Okay. I think we've talked about that. We've established that. Then, yeah. Well then how do you treat an individual patient and what's going on out there? I have concerns. Um, I have concerns that about the counseling for patients to, to really be counseled on this. You really need to review with the patient in front of you, what the risks are, what the benefits are, what the alternatives are. And from what I see in my office, um, it seems that that is suboptimal. And I think a big part of this is because of the way information gets out to not just the public, but to providers. Uh, and this is a big point of mine. Like our information system, I think, Rav, to a large extent is broken because 
it's been kind of corrupted by corporate cash, by pharma cash, basically. Doctors are good for the most part. I mean, there's good and bad doctors and whatever, but I think most doctors are trying to take good care of their patients and they're good people. And most patients are also trying to do the right thing uh, for themselves and for their babies. And, and both groups, the providers taking care and the patients and themselves, the women themselves need good support. They need good information. But so much of our information that comes out basically is corrupted by the influence of the pharmaceutical industry. So the way this should work in an ideal society is you should have women of childbearing age, doctors that take care of them, the public here, and they're looking for answers, they're looking for information. And then you've got sources looking out for them, protecting the public. That would be like the FDA, the CDC, uh, the media, academic medical centers, uh, key researchers. They would be like the middle group working day in and day out to protect the public. That's what you'd like to have them doing. And then you'd have companies, drug companies, trying to sell products, trying to come up with a good product to sell to the public, but you'd have this really strong information ecosystem to protect the public. We don't have that in our country now, in our society, because this group, this middle group I'm talking about, uh, the regulatory agencies, the academic medical centers, the media are not 100%, but a lot in large part corrupted by pharmaceutical industry cash. So instead of having this wall of protection where you've got physicians and you've got researchers and academic medical centers standing up and protecting the public, you don't have that. By and large, you've got those groups that should be protecting the public often on the payroll of the pharmaceutical industry, helping to sort of promote the products and create an illusion of consensus on this. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And this yeah. and this is a huge problem because obstetrical providers, and I don't just mean docs. I say docs because I'm a doc, but I mean midwives. I mean nurse practitioners. Um, all the great folks out there that are working hard every day to take care of pregnant women aren't often able to get the inf right information because our information ecosystem is so corrupted by pharma cash. So we're not able to actually get the correct information on this stuff out to providers and out to public, out to the public. Mm. Yeah, so can you relate that to the SSRI information landscape then for pregnancy? So, so do you think that the information that's propagated on that front is is heavily corrupted, and and therefore providers are not given uh, an accurate uh, assessment of the side effects with you know of all the things that we've talked about? Like, is there not enough uh, transparency on that front in your view? Yeah, this for sure looks like a corrupted informational landscape to me. I mean, even if you look, if you grab your article, again, the one that just came out. So the article came out and then an editorial came out on that. And both the article and the editorial just, I don't say casually, but somewhat casually make the comment. So the article itself says, Currently, prescribing SSRIs to pregnant individuals is generally considered safe. 
That's the statement from the article. The accompanying editorial uh, also. I wonder if the researchers have any any conflicts of interest or how that study was funded, because that would be a clear incentive if it if there's a connection there. I don't know. Yeah, I think that I I, I don't know their particular. I think this was funded by um by another. They, they they do talk about that in the article. I didn't see Farm. I think it was funded funded by a, okay. a, a Netherlands based group or other. But it, when the when the information landscape is corrupted, I think it it affects even the researchers writing the papers. There is this sort of general general uh, illusion of consensus about safety. But if you think. You know, what does that mean they're safe? If a pregnant woman asks me, like, in, if I get pushed by someone, what are the effects? Um, I'm going to tell them it looks like it increases birth defects. It looks like it increases miscarriage. It looks like it increases preterm birth. It increases postpartum hemorrhage. It increases uh, preeclampsia. It in dramatically increases newborn behavioral syndrome. And it looks like there may be long-term effects. Um from uh, from this and other studies, that doesn't particularly sound safe to people um, when, when they hear that. This whole safety, it, it's a relative term. I think what the researchers are trying to get at is it doesn't look like thalidomide. In obstetrics, we often compare things to thalidomide because thalidomide was such a tragedy. It was a drug that was used, I believe, in the 60s, uh, which was causing focamelia, um, defect where the, the uh, development of the, of the extremities was dramatic dramatically affected. Um, and so I think they're making that kind of a, of a jump there. Mm. We're not seeing that, but we are right. seeing lots of complications. But I would say that this, this illusion of consensus or this, what I call the corporate conventional wisdom is to just basically say that they're safe, but that's just not, I mean, I don't even know what that term means for patients, you know, safe it's, it's not, I mean, water is safe. Uh, drinking water, this is not water. This is a synthetic chemical compound coming out of a chemical manufacturing facility that's been shown to have significant harmful effects. So I think you've got to kind of get away from that terminology and just tell patients what the literature shows, uh, what the research shows, and then again, let them make up their mind on this and then support them with what they decide. And going back again to my question, um, what's your assessment of that informational landscape in terms of what physicians are hearing? Like, are, are the drug companies, is the FDA and CDC not being uh, transparent enough about these side effects, in your view? Oh, I'm absolutely. Yeah, yes. The answer is yes. I'm absolutely concerned about this. I think the FDA should put out a warning about the um, the, the effects on the developing fetal brain. Uh, I think the FDA, I thought the FDA should have put out a warning on postpartum hemorrhage, which they now have done. I'd like to see a broad warning that the FDA puts out on what the literature is showing up on this to inform the public. I think the CDC could also do a better job of that, uh, of that for sure. And then I think your academic medical centers could probably do a better job. If you go and you put antidepressants in pregnancy in a Google search, you'll find articles from like Johns Hopkins or the Mayo Clinic that say things that some of which are just completely not true. If you pull it up, there's a Johns Hopkins article that says something like, it's generally regarded that antidepressants are safe in pregnancy and not linked to birth defects, but there actually is fair bit of evidence showing that they're linked to birth defects, including studies from the CDC. Um, but but the public doesn't get that when they go to a website like that and they see, oh, we've got a Johns Hopkins uh, 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 physician writing this.
Right. Yeah. I'm just uh, looking. Well, first, uh, not exactly uh, related to what you just said, but there is one John Hopkins article saying that 30% of babies whose mothers take SSRIs will experience neonatal adaption syndrome, which causes increased jitteriness, irritability, and respiratory distress, among other symptoms. Yeah, 30% is a high number, Rob. But as I said, some people will put that number even higher. Um, and that's a you know a really dramatic difference, which tells you right there, just from that, where's that coming from? That's a chemical that's having an effect on a baby's brain. That's that's what's that's what's happening. You're having a chemical effect. I probably sound like a broken record by now, but I, I try to get people to understand the pharmaceutical industry paints medications. You know, usually they come in bright colors or they're light. The pills are like light pink or whatever as this benign thing. The commercials have balloons and beaches and people playing baseball and stuff like that. But what what medications are, you got to remember, you open that canister, you're taking a synthetic chemical compound. It's coming out of a chemical manufacturing facility. It's not a naturally occurring substance. You're not drinking a glass of water. You're, you're, you're not eating an orange off the tree. You're taking a synthetic chemical compound and putting it into your body. Your body's a biologic system. Chemicals have consequences on biologic systems. That's what's going to happen. Right. It's, it's funny. Uh, well, what I'm seeing in my first few searches on Johns Hopkins are the opposite of what you said. <laughs> I'm actually, so, so, so there's a study from 2014, by the way, on Johns Hopkins, Bloomberg School of Public Health, finding association between SSRI use during pregnancy and autism and developmental delays in boys. Have you looked, have you looked at this particular study? Yeah, I'm sure I do when it came out. It looks like it was out, it was out in 2014. Yeah. It looks like it might have been out in 2014. Yeah, no, I'm glad you found that. I'll have to, I can't pull up on my screen here, but did, I, did you do just a general antidepressants in pregnancy search? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. You're, you're doing, you're finding better stuff. Than yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And then this is, yeah, well, this is interesting. Yeah. We found prenatal SSRI exposure was nearly three times as likely in boys with ACE, ASD relative to typical development, ASD, autism spectrum disorder. That's right. With the greatest risk when exposure took place during the first trimester. SSRI was also elevated among boys with DD, that's developmental delays, with the strongest exposure effect in the third trimester. Serotonin is critical to early brain development. Exposure during pregnancy to anything that influences serotonin levels can have potential effect on birth and developmental outcomes. Interesting. And and that's especially uh, striking given how um, the rates of autism are on the rise, which, you know, many people have been questioning whether is it is it vaccines or is it something environmental or something psychological? What exactly is causing all that? Right. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I think once you break the code on this that I'm trying to describe, you'll understand that, yeah, this is really concerning. We're seeing a lot more um, neurodevelopmental disability in the population, autism, a autism spectrum disorder, ADHD, lots more of this is being diagnosed. And so if you're asked the question, like, could all of these chemicals that moms are taking during pregnancy that are going into the developing fetal brain, could that be contributing to this? I mean, the answer is yes, absolutely. You've got a developing fetal brain. It's a rapidly developing system, and it's got to go from like 
zero to 60, right? Zero to a hundred billion. I don't know the exact number of for fetal neurons. Uh, I'm sure you could uh, talk to a, a neurobiologist that could, could inform you better. But if you've got to go from zero when you've got, you know, sperm meets the egg to zero to a hundred billion neurons to a hundred trillion synapses, synapses, and you're doing that with a synthetic chemical compound, an antidepressant that's disrupting the serotonin system, could that cause uh, neurobehavioral abnormalities? Absolutely. And we're doing this not just with SSRIs, we're doing this with a lot of medications that are being used during pregnancy, uh, during the newborn period. We've got a lot of exposure to synthetic chemical compounds uh, to our developing children, uh, developing babies, and then children. Right. And again, Rob, it's not an extreme position. It doesn't mean you can't ever use a medication. It doesn't yeah. mean you can't. It doesn't mean that. It doesn't mean that at all. It doesn't mean you should right. shame people who did that. It doesn't mean that at all. It doesn't mean that. I have plenty of patients who use medications. We all know this. It just means we need to be uh, aware of this and keep this on our radar or front and center and just have a more of a, of a societal recognition of what medications are their synthetic chemical compounds and what those impacts are on 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 the human biology on the human body and in particular on developing babies and pregnant women. Hmm. Uh, a Mayo Clinic article I just pulled up: antidepressants safe during pregnancy? Question uh, mark. The biggest concern is typically the risk of birth defects from exposure to antidepressants. Overall, the, the risk of birth defects and other problems for babies and mothers who take antidepressants during pregnancy is very low. So if, if you look, there's a study from the CDC that looked at venlafaxine, which is an antidepressant. I believe that's Effexor. And the odds ratio for birth defects from that drug, the odds ratio was, I think, 9 or 16. I mean, it's whopping high rate of birth defects, high increase in the risk of birth defects uh, with the use of that drug. The, there's other CDC. These are CDC studies that you can look at that show this link to birth defects, a significant link. And if your baby's born with a heart defect uh, or other defect, that's, that, that's a major problem for, you know, for that baby and, and for you. Mm. Right. And uh, again, in, in terms of the pharmaceutical companies, um, are, are they pretty heavily advertising the use of SSRIs during pregnancy and not being honest about uh, the risks? I don't think that's the way that they've done it is through advertising and because it's it's that would be a minefield for them and I'm sure there's other uh, other reasons for them to steer clear of that. So I don't think I don't watch a lot of um, <laughs> corporate media. I don't watch a lot of <laughs> news yeah. just on, where they run the pharmaceutical ads all throughout the commercials. But I don't think you're going to see on those ads groups of pregnant women in them. I don't think that they want that, and I don't think that that's 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 going to be a minefield. So I don't think that's what they do. Um, I'm speculating, but I think that the the main way is that they fund the centers and the researchers that are considered key opinion leaders in this area um, who then will um, who then uh, voice a uh, 
uh, sort of corporate conventional wisdom, which includes um, the, the this idea or this notion um, of of safety and of not even looking at question one, what you'll see a lot of these, uh, a lot of the the information that's coming out is dealing with uh, this the, the not not even treating these as chemicals you often never even find these referred to as chemicals or chemical effects on the baby or things like that uh, most of the discussion around this literature is the importance of um maternal mental health uh and, and the focus on that is sort of um sort of taking your eye off the ball of question one completely. I don't disagree with the importance of mental health. I want, you know, all of my moms that I take care of to have good mental health. Um, and I, I don't think their depression should be ignored. I don't think they should be shamed. There shouldn't be pill shaming, none of that. They should be supported. They should get good, compassionate care. Um, we should treat pregnant women how you treat, though, it depends. Uh, it's not just using an SSRI. There's a lot of approaches to mental health. Uh, in yeah. terms of community, in terms of um, exercise and other things that can also, uh, you know, play a role. And a lot of the expert guidelines do try to carve out that, which is to to try, and I think we'll see more of this over time, uh, to try non-medication approaches to things um, to avoid, again, the chemical effects uh, f from the exposure. Right. I mean, one of the first principles in medicine is first do no harm. Right. So if, if that's if that's the approach you have, it seems like you'd want to use SSRIs in very, very rare circumstances. You know, maybe if the mother's really suicidal uh, or going through like some very difficult, tragic issues, maybe then you know, there might be a rationale. But, uh, you know, for I mean, depression rates have been rising for a while. A lot of people, you know, my own family and social circles that I know are experiencing you know, depression. Which Dr. Roger McFillin uh, has some great advocacy on that. On how something like depression, uh, you know, however you want to exactly define it, is some is often a symptom of a deeper spiritual or psychological problem. Persons experience a lot of traumas. They don't like their job. They don't like their marriage. There's certain communication issues with their spouse or with their kids, etc. Like there's all sorts of causes for that. And simply handing a pill, which may have some serious side effects associated with it for um, the the brain health of the fetus, is something that should be um, you know, looked at very carefully and used very sparingly, right? Yeah, I think, I think the important thing for me, um, I don't disagree with you. I think the important thing for me is to get the information to the patient and get the information to the public and, and providers to get the correct information. And then with that information, moms can make uh, an informed decision and they can decide what's, you know, what's best for them. But to try to get them the right information about um, risks, benefits, alternatives, and what the literature shows. I'm not a primary mental health provider, so I don't provide primary mental health care. But when I look at this literature, it looks like the the, the evidence of benefit uh, is really weak for the evidence of benefit. Um, it, when people right. look at the randomized controlled trials, yeah. and it looks like it's mostly confined to short-term studies and trying to look and find 
longer term that people who are on these for long periods are getting benefit, I think it gets even weaker. So that's my own look at the literature on this. But ultimately, I don't you know, make that decision. I'm not the patient's primary mental health provider. I think it's important to inform the patient and give them the information uh, about what the studies show, um, both for effects as well as for effects on the fetus, but as well as just what the literature shows for benefit uh, of or 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 lack of benefit in the case of the antidepressants, show them the literature, explain this to them, inform them, and then let them make the best choice that they can, and then support them in their decision. Um, and again, support them in their decision with good, compassionate care, without right. guilt, without shaming, with none of that. A few people, I, 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 I'm a full-time clinician. I don't, I'm not able to do. A, respond too much on Twitter, but a couple of people will write in the comments like, don't pill shame women, but a comment or a, a concern about chemical effects of a medication yeah. is not pill shaming. It's trying to get the information out um, about the uh, about the effects. Women, whatever they decide, I feel should be supported and given good care. It's not about shaming people or trying to embarrass them or, right. or, or guilt them. And when we talk about the, the brain development of the fetus, like there's a variety of factors um, that can affect that development in an adverse way. I mean, I remember reading Dr. Gabor Mate, his book on ADHD, Scattered Minds. He talks about how, you know, mothers experiencing a lot of stress um, can, in, can induce or pass on high levels of cortisol to the fetus, which can have an adverse impact for uh, future brain health, like when they're born potentially higher rates of ADHD or anxiety. And, and you know, uh, Gabor talks a lot about how, you know, mothers who are very stressed out, they, they um, the, the, the newborn infant can detect various signals such as the dilation of the pupils and detect what level of cortisol uh, that the mother has and, and therefore um, have a potential adverse impact on the brain. Like, like there's so many intricacies. There's, there's such a strong neurobiological connection between uh, the, the mother and the child, um, you know, some of which is understood, some of which is completely mysterious and unknown, um, where it seems like you want to be very, very careful in the stage of pregnancy and even afterwards with what you give. I mean, are, are there any other uh, areas which are of particular concern to you, like, like potentially any other drugs or lifestyle choices that for you are, um, uh, that, that raise certain issues and, should be talked about more when it comes to the, the development of the fetus? Well, more broadly, I think that we sort of have a, have developed in our society a, a very um, pharma-friendly approach to life. Uh, we, we, we're using a lot of medications, and this is something that I first noticed when I went through medical school. I remember one of my internal medicine rotations, uh, the, the, the chief resident told me to to make a list of the patient's medications in the right-hand column. And because he'd say there would be somewhere between 10 and 20, I mean, all of these patients were on large numbers of medications. Excuse me. I see this um, in, in my practice. Uh, we, I would estimate that in recorded human history, we are the most pharmaceutically exposed human beings that have ever walked the planet. I mean, we're on... Uh, we humans in general, our society now, are on so many pharmaceuticals, so many drugs and medications, um, and we've developed this almost, you know, very passive approach towards what that is. 
which I think is one of the things I try to emphasize with my focus on these being chemicals is that you're, you know, you're getting chemically exposed. So I'll see women routinely in my office that will be, um, on an antidepressant. Uh, they may also be taking medication for nausea and vomiting early in pregnancy. Um, and then they may be taking something for, uh, for upset stomach or heartburn. Um, <laughs> we just don't know what all of the combination of these medications are doing, which again, I got to reemphasize and I've said it now multiple times. And I hope I don't sound like a broken record, but this doesn't mean to ignore women um, who have heartburn in pregnancy or ignore women who have, you know, pain or whatnot. But it's just, I think we need to be cognizant. For years, we told pregnant women Tylenol is safe in pregnancy. That was the, that was the, the, the consensus. <laughs> The illusion of consensus was that Tylenol was safe in pregnancy. But as it's been studied further, we've seen that the animal studies show harm from Tylenol on the developing fetus. And the human studies are are showing that as well. There was a group um, of, uh, of researchers a couple of years back who put out a consensus statement saying we need to make the warnings about Tylenol use during pregnancy stronger. So, so pregnant women understand that this is not just a benign, a benign uh, thing that are popping in their mouth, that there can be effects of this. So I'm trying to answer your question more broadly. I'm concerned that we've taken a very um, uh, passive approach in, to this, and we've got a lot, everybody popping pills, which is which is going to have impacts, chemical impacts on everybody doing this. And in particular, when you're doing this in pregnancy, you'll have impacts in the developing fetus. Right. I mean, there's already certain rules that we we've agreed upon, right? Like pregnant women are not supposed to be drinking alcohol, you know, marijuana, like psychedelics, like, you know, try to remain as stress-free as possible. Um, uh, you know, controlling various forms of exercise. Like there's all these different things that we've already established, but uh, it sounds like when it comes to pharmaceutical drugs, there needs to be more of a uh, cautionary tale on what what should and shouldn't be used so it's not just ssris but it, you know it's, it's tylenol i mean is tylenol in your assessment should it never be used or should it be used you know like ssris like very very like, like in very rare circumstances yeah i think these things can be used depending on the circumstance and it really depends on um it depends on what the particular circumstances are uh and again it all comes down to not me saying whether you should be using it but whether the patient makes that decision in, in an informed consent scenario I, I go back to you know if if a woman has a terrible headache whatever the tylenol is the one thing that makes her headache go away it's like can you take a towel in that scenario? Yeah, you can take a towel in that scenario. Um, as long as you understand, you know, what you're taking, I think that that's, that's, that, that, that's okay. Um, probably, you know, limited exposure to that is not going to have the kind, same kind of impact that chronic exposure does to any, to, you know, to any medication. Um, but we can treat moms. You know, when, when a mom has epilepsy during pregnancy, we don't tell her, look, you're pregnant now, so you're just going to need to be continuing to have seizures throughout your pregnancy. Like, that's not how we treat pregnant women with epilepsy. So we do use medications where needed, but with the knowledge that they can have an impact. And we've seen that. The epileptic medications, the anti-epileptics do have an impact on the, on the developing baby. So it all just comes down to the counseling. But we're missing right now in our society 
the information that we really need for doctors and patients to be able to do this counseling the right way. Um, a lot of patients are being told with a lot of these things that, oh, they're just safe in pregnancy. That's the counseling I got. They told me that the, 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 the medication was just safe in pregnancy. That's all they told me. And that's really not adequate, uh, not adequate, you know, counseling. So, sorry, you're saying that's what they told you, like in your training, or that's what patients tell you? That patients will tell me that. Patients, patients will like, tell me that, that their doctor said it's safe to yeah, you. I'll, yeah. yeah. I'll ask, like, you know, what were you told or have you had this discussion to kind of just see where they're at, get a feeling for where the patient's at. And um, and some of them, you know, will, will say that I, they didn't really tell me anything. They said I, it can be used and that it's safe in pregnancy. And I just don't think that that's, you know, adequate counseling. They really need to pay, a patient really needs to know yeah. uh, before, again, uh, uh, the risks, the benefits, the alternatives, the sort of whole discussion that you would do uh, prior to, uh, to taking a medication. Right. Uh, are there any other drugs on your radar that may be linked to, to some harm when it comes to the development of the fetus? Uh, the big one that I was dealing with recently that, uh, was, was McKenna, um, not so much from a fetal harm standpoint, although I do worry about it because it's a synthetic chemical compound, but I think the McKenna story is an important one for everybody to know, because basically what we've just done in the United States over the last 20 years is we've been injecting pregnant women weekly with a synthetic hormone that was FDA approved, but ultimately shown not to actually work. It was being done to prevent preterm birth. Um, and the FDA gave its approval based on one really flawed study through this accelerated approval program. And then it got rolled out and it became a do, do you know what Do you know which pharmaceutical company? It was, uh, it was a, uh, well, it went through a couple of them as the pharmaceutical companies, one gets bought out by the other, but the main one during its heyday was AMAG Pharmaceuticals, AMAG Pharmaceuticals was the main one um, that was, uh, that was behind it uh, during its most uh, profitable and popular years. But it's a classic story of a recurring theme, which we see in medicine, which is that when when these pharmaceuticals get rolled out, they almost always get rolled out and the patients are told they're going to be safe, basically completely safe is often what, how they're rolled out, effective, um, and that they're going to lead to health benefits short-term and long-term. That's how they get rolled out. Um, and it's almost like rolling a product out to try to get a, you know, a big profit on it. And they often do get a big profit on it. Then when they're out for a while and they're studied further, what we often discover with them is that they're not as safe as originally sold. In the case of McKenna, that they're, they're not effective. When, when we did the uh, confirmatory trial in McKenna, it was shown actually not to work. It didn't prevent preterm birth. Um, and there are, you know, health, health concerns or health consequences of the exposure. So, you know, this is what we see. What happened though with, with this drug, which happens with so many, is that it became profitable. It became a profitable product, a profitable drug. Then the pharmaceutical company that makes the drug is able to use those profits to sponsor researchers and programs and academic medical societies. And then those groups often will then 
recommend use of the drug, which then furthers the profits, which then leads to this cycle that you get, which is that the sale of the product, the sale of the drug leads to profits, which then can influence the information that gets out to people, which leads to more use, which leads to more sales, and it goes around and around. And this is the you know, a problem not just for McKenna, but, uh, you know, throughout our society. The academic medical societies in the United States, this is true almost across the board, are pharma-funded. And so instead of th that, that group that I was describing before that you would want solidly protecting patients and the public, working day and night to make sure that the drugs they were taking were safe, effective, and good for health, and fighting the pharmaceutical industry where needed. Instead of that, your academic medical societies essentially are working to some extent, maybe in a large part, for the pharmaceutical industry in order to get their products out to the public. Whether this was like, the, the great example is, the, I think it was the American Pain Society, essentially coming up with these protocols and algorithms to use OxyContin to get to get people using more and more of that. We see that with the American Psychiatric Association. You see that with all of these different societies and associations, which which leads the public like really empty-handed. If you ask the question of who is standing up for the public trying to get them the information they need to make the right decisions about drugs. Like, who is that? It's, it's basically, it's Rob out there in Vancouver doing the podcast. It's, we're, we're, we're missing, we're missing the, the groups that really should be doing that in our society. We've got to some extent a failed society, a failed informational system in our society where the people that should be, playing that role are often actually to some extent, maybe a large extent working for the pharmaceutical industry. And when it comes to the drug McKenna, uh, did the FDA reverse their approval for the drug? The FDA thankfully did pull it. It got pulled April 6th, I believe was the, um, was the date on that April 6th, 2023. So just this past April, but, What's a remarkable story about that is that drug was initially uh, started to get used back in 2003, so 20 years before it got pulled, based on one study. And the, the original study, it was a randomized controlled trial, but it was really flawed. Uh, it, it wasn't a good randomization. We were talking earlier about like how a randomized trial should work. In this trial, the randomization failed. So the group that got the placebo actually had a much higher risk profile. They had a lot more prior preterm births. And then what ended up happening was they ended up with more preterm births in the study. McKenna really didn't even look effective in the original study. The rate of recurrent preterm birth in the original study was about I think it was 37%, which is a high rate of recurrent preterm birth. It really didn't look like the McKenna worked. But the reason it looked effective was that the placebo arm had a rate of 50, I think it was 52%. So really what it looked like was that your placebo group was just like crazy high rate of recurrent preterm birth. And that would go along with the fact that it was a higher risk group. But even though the study was so flawed, it got approved in 2011 by the FDA. But they said, look, it's accelerated approval, so you have to do a confirmatory trial. The confirmatory trial took years to do. The company dragged its feet. It wasn't getting done. And in the meantime, the company was making billions of dollars on this thing through 2016, 2017, 2018. 
finally the confirmatory trial came out in 2019 and showed it didn't work. So I thought immediately, look, everyone's going to say like, look, we can't be injecting pregnant women with a hormone, a synthetic hormone that doesn't work. But it didn't end there. It still took four more years after that, more than four years from the March 19, 2019 study to come out until it was actually pulled off the market. So it was just a, it's a huge uh, a black eye for us that we did this for 20 years. But it gets to what you talk about a lot, Rob, which is this illusion of consensus. There was an illusion of consensus around McKenna that went on for about uh, 20 years, that it was safe, that it was effective, that this is what we needed to do um, in order to uh, in order to prevent women from having preterm birth. And so I think it's so important to also, I was a voice during that time against this. And I, I really think this is going to be a, a little bit of a, of a tangent, but I really think it's important for us to encourage voices of dissent because that's often, those often turns out to be correct in the long run. And one thing that really scared me during COVID was that we started to see bills going through legislatures, like I think it was AB 2098 in California, that basically wanted to say, if you as a physician are giving misinformation, and they define the misinformation as being not the scientific consensus, that you could be penalized. I think it was losing your license. But that's basically what I was doing throughout the McKenna time is the scientific consensus was that McKenna was safe and effective and prevented preterm birth. And I was arguing that that wasn't true. So, I mean, that really bothered me. Is Are we going to threaten physicians' licenses for trying to speak out on things, get to the truth about things, protect patients and the public. I think this is a very worrisome turn. Mm. I think we, we really need to encourage people to be speaking out and not dis discouraging dissent. Right, right. Especially when those kind of regulations are parameterized around what the CDC or the FDA is saying. Like, so, you know, their version of the consensus, if you go against that, then there might be some reputational costs or potentially losing your whole license, um, which is quite scary that they can do that. Um, I want to get to COVID in a second. Um, first, I uh, just want to ask a question that just came to my mind was about like herbal supplements. Like we've talked about uh, medications. Is there anything on your radar or uh, any experience you have with uh, pregnant women taking various herbal uh, supplements? Yeah, I worry about it, honestly. I, whenever it comes up, I have to go look into it and research it. I think a lot of it just hasn't been well enough studied, number one. And number two, uh, I, I worry about like contamination of the supplements. Like, who are you getting it from? You know, where is it coming from? Um, I wouldn't completely disregard it for people. And I try to meet people where they're at. And, you know, if they're taking something that they find helpful, that's not causing their, them harm, you know, that's that's not a terrible thing, but I do worry when people get too much into that with things that just haven't been studied, um, you know, what, what, what the impacts can be. I try to encourage people in general to just have a good, healthy diet, focus on the basics, like for a healthy 
pregnancy, um, trying to sleep well, which can be challenging in pregnancy, good basic diet, good food, avoid the processed foods, exercise or activity, that sort of thing to try to have a good healthy pregnancy. When you get too much, I think, into supplements and herbs and things like that, I think you start getting a little more far afield in stuff that's just not studied. Uh, right. and, and I do worry about it, even if it's not contaminated with something else, even just purely, I think we often don't have enough information, but then you worry about the manufacturing process, contamination, et cetera. Right, right. I mean, it, you know, in, in this age, you go to the, the supermarket, there's whole aisles on, uh, er, you know, herbal or different kinds of vitamin or mineral supplement, supplements, like one of the popular ones is ashwagandha, used in ancient Ayurvedic medicine, which is incredibly effective for reducing cortisol levels and managing anxiety. There's this whole class of compounds, which they call adaptogens, which help you adapt to stress. So there's lion's mane mushrooms, cordyceps mushrooms, uh, I think like licorice root, ashwagandha. There's all these different things that people are taking as alternatives to SSRIs or ADHD or anxiety medications um, that hold some pretty, uh, uh, you know, incredible promise and, and may, for, from what it from what it looks like have you know less side effects and less dangers associated with some of the pharmaceutical drugs which are are incredibly you know blunt tools that we're using sure and i would meet people where they're at on that i mean i respect that if people are you know interested in that and looking into that and it's been used i think that um I think that that's, I would never, you know, offhand disregard someone or whatnot, you know, never. When it comes to a, a pregnancy exposure, though, I think you worry about, you know, you'll read in the literature, periodically, there'll be, there'll be case reports of women coming in with odd findings, low fluid or an odd fetal heart rate or something odd. And it turns out that she had been ingesting X, Y, or Z herb and um and that people didn't realize that you know could cause this side effect so i wasn't trying to be dismissive of people using herbs or yeah. using the supplements more just a, a a word of caution uh if we don't know how well studied it is or, or what the effects can be right right and ultimately ultimately there's so many you know you know unanswered questions and mysteries i mean it is you know it, is it a good idea to have like a lot of seafood when you're pregnant or to have, you know, grass fed beef versus vegetarian diet or vegan diet or different kinds of dairy, different kinds of plant foods, carbohydrates, like you know, all of it has some kind of effect and what exactly that effect is. I mean, that's just, that's just life. I and mean, we don't know the effect of everything, right? We're, we're consuming so much information, different kinds of food. We're in different kinds of social, uh, political and emotional environments that have all, all kinds of different effects on us that, you know, a lot of it we just don't understand yet. That's absolutely right. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. Yeah, um, we should we should hit on COVID um, uh, before we go. So th that's been a major issue. Um, some of which I've tracked is how the CDC and the FDA uh, not only said that you know pregnant women could take you know the mRNA COVID vaccines, but should take them, and that it was um, incredibly beneficial with no side effects or very little side effects. Um, and could prevent, you know, hospitalization or death associated with COVID. Um, what, what's your assessment of that particular topic? Yeah, I mean, to give people the benefit of the doubt, I think that uh, it was a challenging time for everybody trying to find their way in it uh, at the time. I think that uh, some people, you know, met, you know, meant well with it. I think that there was a huge, uh, I've been talking about this a lot through this discussion with you, but a huge uh, 
issue of the the pharmaceutical industry and the power of the pharmaceutical industry. Um, And this looked to me like a corporate rollout just of any of their products, which is that when they initially roll out a product, they're going to tell you that it's completely safe, that it's completely effective, and that it's good for short and long-term health. After you've been, it's been out for a while, you'll often discover that that's not the case. And I think that we saw that here. Um, I think as far as it went in pregnancy, people meant well. They thought that, um, you know, women were particularly at risk. Um, and so that people wanted to try to encourage them to, to, to be safe. And I, I think there were mel- well-meaning people there. I think that one of my big frustrations, though, was that I feel like my patients' voices weren't being heard on this. Um, I had many patients, many, many patients coming to me saying that they had concerns that this vaccine had just come out, that it hadn't been studied in pregnancy, that we didn't know what the long-term effects are. They were worried about its safety. Uh, They were worried about um, not so much effectiveness, although that came later, but they were worried about safety. They had concerns about that, and they had real misgivings. and I shared those concerns, and I and I and I think that um, they were being reasonable. What bothered me is that many of those women were then depicted as victims of misinformation that because they felt that way. And you'd see people say that you know that uh, if pregnant women are concerned about using this or being given this new vaccine during pregnancy, they're clearly victims. But I think that was really underestimating their intelligence and um, and, and 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 not supporting them. These women had legitimate concerns about being injected with a new synthetic chemical compound that had never been used in their pregnancy. And um, I think that, you know, what was done as far as telling them they were victims of misinformation was awful. And then I think a further step beyond that that was awful was trying to enforce vaccine mandates on them. I had plenty of women come to me that say, I'm going to lose my job. They, 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 were, they were being threat. You're threatening pregnant women with job loss during their pregnancy because they're concerned about being injected with a new synthetic chemical compound that they're just concerned about. It was almost absurd. And this was not fringe groups that were encouraging this. The American College of OBGYN, the American Society of Maternal Fetal Medicine, I think it was about 11 groups put out a policy statement. um, And this might have been December of 2021, if I remember correctly, basically saying we are encouraging uh, that vaccine mandates be enforced on pregnant women that it shouldn't be considered a a um, it shouldn't be considered an exception to vaccine mandates I mean the, the it was reprehensible it was it was it was outrageous these pregnant women who have concerns about being injected with something need support. That's what they needed. They needed support. They needed information, but support in in what they were saying, not to be belittled and told they were victims of misinformation and that they were idiots and that their jobs were going to be taken away. I mean, I still can't get over that that happened, that that, that that happened across the board in society, and that we had leading medical organizations that were saying this, that women, when they're pregnant, don't have a right to choose whether they're going to get injected with a new pharmaceutical. I mean, it was just extraordinary to me that this occurred. Yeah, it's 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 honestly absolutely insane and disgusting in many ways that that happened. Um I mean, you know, the 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 absence of any uh 
demonstrated harm does not mean safe. It's something Brett Weinstein, I think, has been been quite right about in, in precisely talking about it that way. The the uh, lack of evidence of harm does not mean safe, right? So if something isn't harmful, uh, you know, to our eyes, especially if it's been rolled out so quickly under emergency use authorization, which means that you know Pfizer, Moderna, and other companies are able to fast track their process and cut corners in creating these vaccines and speedily deliver these trials. They're not doing a full assessment of all the effects in all the different cohorts that are adequately powered to show um, all the potential efficacy and safety concerns. Um, when you have that, that doesn't mean um, in any way that, that something is clearly safe. And knowing the infection fatality rates and knowing who is really at risk, which was mostly elderly, uh, immunocompromised, and people with multiple comorbidities like diabetes, obesity, etc., um, it, it honestly doesn't make sense um, why it was promoted that way. Especially when even early on, um, I did a little bit of not reporting. I just tweeted this out because I was hearing um, a large number. I would say it's been a while, but I think like vast majority of young female friends that I had or friends of friends that I had were experiencing serious uh, menstrual disruptions after taking the first or second uh, COVID vaccine shot. Now, you know, there's been some studies on that and the studies, you know, they, they, they confirm that there's a, a very significant uh, risk of having uh, some of these episodes. Now, long-term implications, they're unknown. They say that it's, you know, long-term, it's safe. I mean, is it really? I don't know. I've, I have no idea. But, you know, that's clearly a concern um, that should be looked at when it comes to pregnancy as well. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, patients uh, are going to have, you know, legitimate concerns about that. Um, and they did. And again, that's another example with the, the menstrual irregularities. That's another example where women that were saying that were basically being dismissed um, or being, you know, we're being told that that was misinformation. Um, but it turned out that that was actually correct, that it was yeah. causing menstrual irregularities. Something being safe, you got to remember, I do maternal fetal medicine. I think about pregnancy all the time. One of the biggest tragedies in, in American uh, obstetrical history was the use of the drug DES. DES is diethylstilbestrol. It's a synthetic hormone, synthetic estrogen. It got used in millions of women through the, I think it was 40s, 50s, and 60s. And women were told, look, this is safe. It's safe. It's safe. They, they, they were giving it. There were big ads. Actually, my Twitter page, that picture of the baby where it says, yes, Desplex, really, that picture um, on my Twitter page is from an ad encouraging all pregnant women to use DES, this synthetic hormone in order to have a more successful pregnancy. And lots and lots of pregnant women did. And then what happened? It turned out not to be safe. It caused, uh, it caused cancers. It caused uh, abnormalities, uterine abnormalities, other uh, congenital abnormalities. I mean, it was a real tragedy and a travesty that, that we exposed pregnant women to this for all these years. That ad right there that that's a pharmaceutical yeah. industry ad put up the ad there for people watching yeah that's, that's just a, crazy that's a pharmaceutical industry yeah. ad uh for des and wow. if you if you look at that ad that was like i believe that was full page ads they would say you can Google this and look at the whole ad uh, for the DES advertisement. They would recommend that it would be used in 
all, and they put all in capital letters, all pregnancies um, improve outcomes. And then they listed some references to make it look like uh, it was, uh, you know, scientifically supported. And again, getting back to what we've been talking about, there was an illusion of consensus here that DES is safe, DES is effective, and, um, and it ended up causing great tragedy. So when pregnant women are being cautious about what's going to, what they're going to take or what's going to be injected into them, we need to support those women, not to you know, belittle them or tell them that they're victims of misinformation or, uh, or, you know, or force them into, into treatments that they don't want. I mean, we, that the, 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 the absurdity and the outrageousness of that is, uh, is just, you know, beyond belief. There's a couple of concerns I want to flag for you. Um, there's been some anecdotal reporting, um, from, uh, I believe Alex Berenson's done some reporting on this and, just anecdotally, I've heard many people talk about this, about a perceived rise in miscarriages after the rollout of the mRNA vaccines over the past couple of years. Is, is that anything you've uh, you've seen at all anecdotally or heard about anecdotally? Yeah, I've heard about this. I'm not seeing this so much. Miscarriage is hard to study. It's hard to study because it it depends on how it's diagnosed. Some women will have a miscarriage without even knowing that they were pregnant. Um, it depends on how much early ultrasound that you're doing. Uh, clinically, honestly, I did not see very much. Uh, one thing that did bother me, I'm jumping a little bit away from miscarriage. Uh, my answer to that is I'm not seeing that clinically, but I think you'd really have to tease out the data to really drill down on that, um, whether or not that's, that's in fact occurring. One thing that bothered me is there was all of this discussion about how the 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 COVID was causing stillbirth, and some of the media coverage on this was making it sound like we've developed a stillbirth epidemic from COVID, but that just wasn't reflected in my community. We weren't seeing that, and I would ask others, and they weren't seeing that, and it looks like the CDC data didn't show that. You didn't see a bump in stillbirth, but you had all of these uh, media uh, outlets reporting on this, um, including ProPublica put out an article on this, where they quoted the person that they quoted in the, in the article uh, as 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 there being these stillbirths going on was was someone who was like sort of I think it was a paid vaccine advocate um, at the time and so this again points to how you know incorrect information gets out to people we just didn't see that and I don't see that uh, you know in in the in the literature um, I think the, the story is still yet to be written it'll need to be studied more uh, you know what that what those stillbirth numbers look like but we, we weren't seeing that bump in my community whether or not there's miscarriage now after that i think it'll have to be more studied more investigated but just anecdotally from what i'm seeing i'm not seeing that yeah uh one thing i've actually written myself i'm just gonna highlight this here again for people who are watching so there was a study uh published last year it was quite contentious and it was making the rounds online and it was a study published in JAMA that found traces of mRNA COVID-19 vaccine material in breast milk um, in women. It, it was a small study um, and uh, as I wrote, the study prompts far more questions than it answers. Um, it, it was not comprehensive. It was very, very small. It was just, they just studied 11 women. Um, nonetheless, five out of 11 women 
were found to have trace amounts of mRNA in their breast milk for 48 hours post-vaccination. Um, and and you know, that, that raises serious concerns. Um, one can't help but wonder what the outcomes might be if they studied 1,000 or 10,000 or 100,000 women. Uh, the authors state that these data demonstrate for the first time our knowledge uh, to our knowledge, the biodistribution of COVID-19 vaccine mRNA to mammary cells and the potential ability of tissue EVs, extracellular vesicles, to package the vaccine mRNA that can be transported to distant cells. Um, uh, one uh, pediatrician I spoke to who remained anonymous, uh, she, she said, we just don't know if it's harmful. Uh, my gut feeling is that it is likely harmless after 48 hours. However, there is very little evidence to help us definitively evaluate the risk. We certainly shouldn't be mass vaccinating breastfeeding women based on anybody's hunches, mine included. So, uh, first of all, did, did you look at that, uh, uh, the study before? And yeah. what are your thoughts on it? Yeah, no, I mean, it's a concern. Yeah, for sure. For sure. I, I, would, I would be careful. I, I agree. It's a concern. I don't fearmonger on this. I don't believe in that. I think that, um, you know, I had patients who heard the information and weighed it and they wanted to get the vaccine. They got the vaccine. I had other patients who heard the information, got it and didn't want to be vaccinated and, and they decided not to. Um, I think the big thing is, is again, to get the information out, that particular issue that falls again into the category, women were concerned, like, do we know what this does? Again, I'm going back. I'd say it's a synthetic chemical exposure. That's what that is. The vaccine is a synthetic chemical compound. You're giving a synthetic chemical exposure to pregnant women or breastfeeding women. And we really didn't, didn't know and don't know the long-term ramifications of that. So what does that mean? That means that you provide that information to women and you let them make the best choice that they want to make, um, you know, as far as what, what they want to do. Um, but the, again, the problem there is with the mandates. Your, your women felt mandated. These are women who wanted to be pregnant and breastfeed and just weren't comfortable. They were concerned. Maybe it'll get into my breast milk. First, they were told, no, that's not going to occur and that that is misinformation. And then they were told, no, you take this. Um, you have to take this new synthetic chemical be injected into you or you'll, you'll lose your job. You'll lose your livelihood. The coercion. I mean, we were tolerating as a society, we were tolerating active coercion, like almost forcible coercion of our pregnant and breastfeeding women over this. This is, I mean, it's like shame on us, right? This is horrible. These women who were concerned about their bodies and their babies and the, and the effects of, of this exposure and what this would mean Again, you've got to support them and you've got to stand with them as a community and shaming them and forcing them to into vaccination um, through coercion was just, I said it several times now, but, you know, beyond belief. And that our professional medical societies were doing this, we're jumping on board. This is it's really beyond the pale. How do you make sense of the capture of uh, the the institutions in your industry? I think you mentioned the the OBGYN uh, College of America or whatever it's called. They they were promoting the vaccines, <laughs> vaccine mandates. How, how do you how do you how do you explain their uh, you know complete kind of propagandistic promotion of the COVID vaccines despite not being uh, completely clear on the risks and benefits? 
I wasn't laughing at you. OBGYN College of America. I like that phrase better. It's the American College of OBGYN. Um, right here, right here. And they, but, <laughs> I like the way you phrase it as well. Um, <laughs> I think it's a big, I think it's a major problem. The regulatory capture and the capture of our professional medical societies is a major problem. And um, a big part of it is just a fundamental issue of that. I would say the forces of intervention in society, the drug and device makers are making products that can then generate profit, which can then be used to influence these societies like the American College of OBGYN. The forces of caution, of not doing um, interventions, of not taking medications or whatnot, they're not selling any product. So they're not generating any profit in order to be able to similarly influence these societies. So you get this real imbalance and you always get a push in society towards the drug, towards the intervention, because that's who has the money. And that's basically who's financing a lot of these, not a hundred percent. Again, it's not across the board. Some of them try to avoid industry funding, but most of them do accept industry funding and it sponsors a lot of their programs. So there are people presumably, um, I don't know the details of this, but with whose jobs are to promote vaccination through ACOG and they're likely funded by the vaccine makers. And so then that creates a loop where the vaccine makers are funding ACOG, they're promoting vaccines, which then increase the profit, which can then fund more to ACOG, which can then get the word out to vaccinate more. And, and so, and on and on it goes more and more vaccination. We're seeing now with my patients and patients across the board, pushback on this. Right now in pregnancy, we're giving women routinely influenza vaccine and Tdap vaccine. Um, COVID vaccine has been at, was, was being added to that. And now a new one has just come out, the RSV vaccine, and people think coming up next is going to be the GVS vaccine. And so we're going to end up now probably with five, six, more and more vaccines being given during pregnancy. And honestly, Rav, we don't know all of the effects of this uh, on the pregnant mom and on the developing baby. It activates the immune system. It has to do that. We really don't understand completely immune modulation between the mom and the baby. And, and we're doing this now across the board and patients are concerned. What I tell people to kind of get the image in their head is what I ask people to do is picture the chemical manufacturer facility, however you picture it in your head, and then picture the prenatal clinic like just outside of that, outside the gates of the fit manufacturing facility. So the vaccines or the product or whatever it is, the drug is coming fresh out of the chemical manufacturing facility. These are synthetic chemical compounds, and then they're going into the prenatal clinic, and then they're being injected into the pregnant women. And we're doing that now with two, three, five, on and on it's going to go until people say, you know what, we don't think this is the best way to approach health for moms and babies. Um, increasing chemical exposure of pregnant women may not be the best way to get at health for, for moms and developing babies. Right. Right. Um, I was reading here. I'm just going to pull up quickly. Um, an article. Do you know Dr. Vinay Prasad? <laughs> yes. Yeah, sure. yeah, yeah. He's been, well known. Yeah, yeah. He's he's been great on COVID. Um, on his Sensible Medicine uh, Substack, there's this great piece 
on uh, Pfizer's RSV vaccine in pregnant women, published by Dave the Knave. I'm not sure who that is. Dave Alili is a med student. I think Dave's a med student from Mount Sinai. I've never met him, but he wrote this great piece here, and he also gave testimony to his credit at the FDA meeting, uh, the advisory committee meeting on this, and he did a great job. So uh, Dave Dave the Knave deserves a tip of the hat for his uh, good work on the RSV vaccine. Mm. Yeah, so he summarizes at the end of the article, there was modest vaccine efficacy against RSV-associated LRTI. Lower respiratory tract infection. Yeah, that efficacy was decreased against RSV-associated hospitalization, which showed no difference at one year of life. Um, uh, Overall, I'm unable to assess whether these infants conferred benefit from the maternal vaccination uh, effectiveness. Uh, is unclear. Breastfeeding data was completely absent, which is potentially critical for vaccine efficacy. Um, I'm not reassured that this vaccine is safe if the 1% absolute increased risk of premature births is real in the vaccinated group. That is a major blow to the cost benefit of this intervention. We need more randomized data. The only other company that got to this stage halted their trial because of the safety signal the increased risk of premature births in the GSK trial led to increased neonatal death. In my opinion, the FDA should require much more data from Pfizer before considering approval. Do you agree with that? Yeah, absolutely. He summed it up really well. He did a great job on that. The the big concern, again, what is informed consent? What is counseling? You want to talk about risks, benefits, alternatives. The big risk that's emerging from the trials on the RSV vaccine is the risk of increased rates of preterm birth. And GSK, whose vaccine was very similar to Pfizer, they showed increased rate of preterm birth in the women who got the vaccine. And that led to increased rates of neonatal death. It was so convincing to them that they didn't just rejigger their study or rejigger the approach, they dropped their program. They said this is problematic. And so this is very similar to the Pfizer product. So then Pfizer does their study and the Pfizer data also shows increased rates of preterm birth. Their phase two data shows it and the phase three trial showed it as well. So now we've got all of this information, and then it went before FDA or the advisory committee, uh, who basically signed off on it. I, I watched that meeting on Zoom. They said, "Well, we'll collect data on this, you know, down the line." But we know where that might end up. We saw that with McKenna in 2011. FDA approved McKenna. The FDA statistician said, "This looks like." You know, poor data should not be approved. This was McKenna back in 2011, but they approved it. They said, well, we'll do the confirmatory study. And then it took years for that to be done and then years more to get it pulled off the market. So you ended up from 2011 when FDA approved McKenna to 2023, 12 years of, of injecting women with an um, ineffective synthetic hormone. So the promise that, oh, we'll look at this, we'll look at this once we roll it out, uh, doesn't provide me with a lot of reassurance. Um, it, it really concerns me. If this drug is, if this vaccine 
vaccine for RSV is causing increased rates of preterm birth, are we going to be able to effectively identify it? And then are we going to be able to get it off the market? And then what harm are we going to have caused in the, in the meantime for this? And I'll tell you again, I hear this every day from patients. They're concerned about being injected with more and more things during their pregnancy. And I don't think it's right as a, as a provider, as a society to say, look, these pregnant women are, are being misinformed. It's misinformation and they're, and they're not intelligent uh, and they should shut up basically and take the shot. It's like, that's not the way to do this. We have to listen to other pregnant women and the pregnant women are voicing their concerns about this. And I think we should respect that, uh, acknowledge that. And I share their concerns. Uh, apart from the COVID vaccine and this RSC vaccine, which is not approved or you know being distributed right at this point, this is just they've just done the studies on it. It's, it's on it's on its way, Rob. It's on its way. It's going to be. You know, it's it got approved by FDA. It's got approved by FDA. They'll be rolling it out. They'll, you'll have oh, a roll. Well, they've already approved it. So yeah, geez. it got FDA oh, wow. approval. The rollout okay. is the rollout is coming. Wow. Okay. The rollout is coming. You'll be told it's it's basically completely safe. It's uh, highly effective, and it's going to be providing you with both short and long term health benefits. That's the way the initial rollout on the pharmaceutical agents goes. And then we have to figure out over time: is it actually safe, or is it increasing increasing preterm birth? Is it actually effective? Dave pointed out from that data that he showed that um, the effectiveness there, it looked like it might have bumped down RSV, but not at the one-year mark, and it didn't really look like it had effect on all cause. So you might have just been swapping out less RSV for more of something else. It didn't look particularly effective. We'll see what that shows, and then we'll see what else shows up after they roll it out. Yeah, and what's your view of, 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 of FDA approving it? I mean, what, what does that show about their whole regulatory process. Yeah, huge concerns with the FDA. And it's really, it's really concerning, you know, for all of us, because again, I've made this point several times, but society needs regulatory bodies that are trusted by the public, that we need them working day and night to stand on behalf of the public, protecting the public. That's what you need your regulatory agencies to look like. Right now, that's not what FDA looks like at all. Like the public across the board has lost faith in the FDA. And a large part of that is that they see them as being captured by the pharmaceutical industry. I think it's like 11 of the last 12 commissioners, maybe 12 of 13, have left FDA to go work for pharma. Like it looks like pharma's minor league system, basically. And it's a revolving door. The public completely doesn't, you know, doesn't, doesn't trust in that. And that's a huge problem because that's what we really need. Again, an ideal society has the public here. You've got drug companies here trying to sell their products, but then you've got this whole information and regulatory infrastructure to protect the public, to work on behalf of the people and the pregnant women trying to get them the right information. But that's really not how our system and society works. Our system and society, again, not 100%, but to a large extent, the, that that those regulatory agencies, the academic medical societies, the academic medicine is essentially co-opted by pharma and by the device industries and are launching their products onto the public. And basically, we don't have enough uh, protection of the public and people working on behalf of the public to provide them with protection, regulation, and the correct information.
Yeah, I, I totally agree. Um, is, is there anything else on your radar in terms of vaccines, like vaccines that have already been approved, have long been distributed and recommended to pregnant women um, that you think may not be as effective and safe as as advertised? Yeah, the big ones were the ones I talked about, about um, influenza and Tdap, uh, and we talked about RSV and the other ones that are in the pipeline and COVID. I think pregnant women need to to uh, be in, well informed and then to um, and then to weigh the risks and the benefits, uh, you know, for themselves uh, on the on, on the exposure as far as um, as far as use in pregnancy. That's kind of where we're at with that right now. And I think for different women, it's different, you know, the way they balance uh, weigh risks versus benefits, whether they've got concerns about influenza, concerns about uh, pertussis, and then, you know, whether they've got concerns about exposure to vaccine during pregnancy. And um, I generally try to provide the information to my patients, respect where they're coming from, respect their opinions, support them. Um, But I do share their concerns that uh, with more and more exposure during pregnancy, that we don't really know what the long-term effects are. There are concerns about what, um, what effects these can have. Mm-hmm. Uh, before we go, uh, last two questions. Um, you know, all of what you've said is quite uh, refreshing and interesting. You know, and, and I don't, I don't have a good sense of what exactly you know people in your position and other uh, you know areas are saying. But what's your sense of your colleagues and what they're recommending uh, and prescribing? I mean, are, is your perspective? Uh, more contrarian or more dissident compared to your to your colleagues, or are there lots of people that you find that are agreeing with you, whether on SSRIs or COVID vaccines? I think that there's a lot of concern. I think a lot of my colleagues share my concerns about um, about exposure and about what they're seeing. Um, I think there's a lot of concern and maybe growing concern. And I'm not sure, you know, how much the whole you know COVID debacle has played into that, but growing concern about the way our system works in terms of getting drugs uh, and recommendations out to the public. I think. Uh, the the opiate crisis, uh, Purdue Pharma, uh, Vioxx, um, all of the corruption uh, that people are seeing, and and the problems with the the influence of the pharmaceutical industry, I think has really turned. Uh, this is true for patients and my colleagues as well uh, to have a lot of suspicion about things. I think that's absolutely out there, um, but I do think it's hard because doctors and uh, providers want to take good care of patients and the patients want to be well cared for. They want to get the right information, but it's really hard to get, uh, to get the, the, the information for people right now, because as I said, over the overarching information ecosystem, particularly the corporate sponsored ones are all pushing in one direction um, and, and giving this sort of illusion of consensus, as you say, which is why people really need to um, encourage uh, dissident voices and look to that and to try to um, make sure that those voices aren't clamped down on. I'm a big, I have big concerns with this whole new push that we're starting to see about misinformation and we've yeah. got to stop misinformation. I, I think that that is a wolf in sheep's clothing. It sounds good, right? People, these groups, they're 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 going to help us get the right information, and they're going to stop the public from getting incorrect information. But really, what's going to happen when when you embrace this whole 
paradigm of misinformation, disinformation, malinformation is you're going to get people trying to suppress dissent. That's really what this is going to end up being, trying to suppress dissent. And so I think people need to be clear to push back against that. You want to hear independent voices. You want to hear what they have to say. That's how science works. That's how our society should, should be working. And so uh, if I have one big message for anyone listening to this is push back against this concept of misinformation and disinformation, cracking down on that, because typically what that's used for, uh, you know, almost across the board is to silence dissent, to silence dissenting voices, uh, to keep the powerful powerful, and really to not give or not do what's best or what's in the public interest. Uh, have you felt any pressure at all, by the way? By the the the, the, the regulate the regulatory body for your area of medicine to whether it's COVID vaccines or other areas, have you gone into any trouble for your perspective or felt pressure to promote certain things that you don't feel are right? <laughs> I only felt pressure during this podcast. <laughs> When you're going through some of the, the statistics, no, I'm just, I'm just kidding you. Um, no, I think for the most part, um, my colleagues have been supportive of me uh, trying to raise these issues. I think people understand uh, that, um, you know, my heart's in the right place. I don't get it right all the time, but I want what's best for patients. I want what's best for the public. I want what's best for pregnant women and their babies. And, um, and and that's the goal. And I think that, um, you know, what can interfere with that is the, the, what's best for profit, uh, and sales for the drug and device makers. And so we have to make sure that we've got enough voices that are, are standing up for patients and the public. Uh, and I think by and large people have supported that. I, I've had a couple of, um, a couple of, uh, people try to report me. <laughs> <laughs> trying to report me, but it uh fortunately that did that didn't go anywhere. And uh and overall I've been supported by um by my physician colleagues, by my patients and others to try to keep uh you know raising these issues and um and standing up really for where we should be, which is on behalf of patients, on behalf of of the public. Mm-hmm. On uh, COVID, uh, one of the things that came to my mind that's very important is have you seen any vaccine injuries uh, in your patients and is that something you've looked at at all the implications for pregnant or breastfeeding women who have been vaccine injured because we do know that exists you know with the covid vaccines and i'm i'm, I'm wondering if there are any implications for that yeah, I mean, certainly there's a lot out there about about vaccines and vaccinations uh, and about um, uh, effects. Uh, some of my colleagues, for example, in dermatology have told me they're seeing lots of that, uh, derm, derm issues, derm conditions. Me personally, I have not uh, in OB. Um, I have not. I mean, I've seen some things that uh, I've seen some things that that uh, have raised some concerns, and the patients felt that uh, that there was a connection there. Um, and the, and there may have been. It hasn't been a lot of those cases, though, for me. It hasn't been a yeah. lot of those cases for me in my own experience here in my in my local community. Um, but a, a couple of them I have seen. Um, one in particular that stands out, which was a blood clot um, that uh, that the person felt was related uh, uh, temporally uh, to vaccination. And um, yeah, so I think again, I, I didn't see uh, you know a, a lot of that, but uh, I, I've had colleagues who who, who have uh, colleagues in uh, sorry like dermatology, like skin issues or or OBGYN uh, dermatology mostly. Okay. Yeah, that's yeah, where yeah. I've seen or heard the most uh, about it. 
Right. Yeah. Well, obviously in, in cardiology as well, I've had on Dr. Anish Koka, you might know. Sure. Part, sure. Great cardiologist. Yeah. Obviously that, that's a big thing in the cardiology community due to the connection between COVID vaccines and myocarditis, which has been uh, a big focus of my coverage uh, journalistically. It's something that I've talked a lot about. Yeah, absolutely. Has Mark Cuban gotten back yeah. to you? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I listen. I've I've said I've said Mark, you can come on the podcast. We can go on any other podcast. We can hash this out. We can talk about it. And he's like, "Don't you know that everyone you talk to is conservative, including yourself? Like you're in this like right wing echo chamber." And I'm like, "What? What are you, what are you talking about? My my main sources for news and journalism aren't even traditionally right wing. So I, he's just a complete joke." Um, I, I, I don't hold him with any kind of esteem or, or regard or integrity. Um, he's just one of those people that's looking for more clicks that's being disingenuous and has been fed a very particular narrative. So, yeah, uh, I didn't, I, I looked through some of that when it came out, it seemed to be, he was deferring to, uh, deferring to expert opinion, deferring to consensus. But as we've been talking about for the last two hours here, there's real problems with that. And I've seen that firsthand. I mean, the consensus for about 10 to 20 years was to give this injection McKenna to pregnant women because it was safe, because it was effective, it would prevent them from having preterm births, uh, it would lead to healthier, you know, healthier babies. That was the, the conventional wisdom. That was the consensus, the kind of thing that it looked like uh, Mark Hume was deferring to. But if you defer to that, it was proven completely wrong here. What you end up with is supporting a policy that was that was uh, of a of a completely ineffective drug. So I think that 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 can't really be an argument. Just deferring the consensus opinion, particularly now in our current environment, where the consensus is often a consensus built by the pharmaceutical industry. So you're often just deferring to to the pharmaceutical industry's you know take on this. Yeah. But you're not saying that we can't trust any consensus, right? Like we need to trust in like some foundational things, right? And the question is, well, well, what are established consensus that we need to trust versus ones that we should be skeptical of, right? That That's the major question. Yeah, I think in general, it's good to be skeptical. You be skeptical, you drill into it, you see what, you know, what's, uh, what's, what's real or not. I think that that's, you know, okay, particularly with something that you're going to put into your body, particularly when it comes to, um, you know, to injecting or taking a synthetic chemical compound. I don't think you need to question every consensus. Like, I trust that it's, you know, whatever time it is because we've worked out time over the, 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 the billions of years, you know, figuring out that sort of thing. If you question everything, I think, you know, that might be yeah, the yeah. point you're making. You can't. You have to trust in some things. But certainly with um, drugs, devices, deciding to have a surgical procedure, taking medications, injecting things into you, I think it's good to ask, to, to be skeptical and ask, is this safe? Uh, that's the thing I, the, the take-home point I try to make. Yeah, I always want to ask yourself, is this safe? Is this effective? Is it going to lead to health benefits, short-term and long-term? Uh, for mom and baby when it comes to pregnancy? Uh, and is there a good track record on it? That's always a, you know, a good question to ask for patients. Right, right. Uh, lastly, before you go, um, is, is there any other area of kind of illusion of consensus um, that you feel like needs to be exposed more or highlighted? Uh, and, and any areas of, of false consensus or misinformation, to use the, the popular term, um, that you feel like people need to be more and more aware of? Yeah, I guess the the one thing, and I'm going to rehash what I said before, but just for page, uh, for for listeners uh, to you know to keep in mind this idea about um, about medications 
being being chemicals and medications are chemicals and chemicals have consequences you know for humans uh or in my case or for my field moms and babies to not lose sight of that you get this illusion of illusion of consensus on these things that everybody uses them and that they're just sort of part and this is the way the sort of illusion of consensus here that this is the way society should work that everybody should be getting injected and be taking things all the time and that it should be building over time so that by the time you're into older age you should be on 10 20 30 different medications or or having these multiple pharmaceutical exposures i think that's the main illusion that we're all under right now we sort of live in i, I we need to come up with a word for it uh, a, a, a pharmacracy a, 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 a democracy or a, a government system based on the pharmaceutical industry. Or I think David Healy, I don't know if you know David Healy, the psychiatrist, he uses the term pharmageddon. <laughs> I think that's his term. But to realize that you're in this very abnormal system currently, we're all living in a very abnormal system where the consumption uh, of, of synthetic chemical compounds, these drugs, has become standard and we're all being, you know, probably are potentially uh, overexposed. Obviously, certain cases are different than others, and everybody's health is different, um, and, and that's an individual thing. But by and large, to try to break through that illusion of consensus there with, uh, with the way pharmaceuticals are in our society. Yeah, and, and actually, to, to follow up on that before we go, um, you know, there is a, a counter-argument that you sometimes hear of, like, by having conversations like the ones that we've had, we might potentially be, you know, demonizing or ostracizing or not being honest enough about uh, certain pharmaceutical drugs and synthetic and synthetic chemical uh, compounds that have been massively beneficial and life saving. Um, so, I mean, it, are there any certain ones in your area of medicine um, that you think have been incredibly life saving and beneficial? Sure. And my message is not about my, 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 yeah, my message yeah. is not nihilistic at all. It's not yeah. that you can't use this, but you got to know what's going into you. We've got, we've got chemotherapy agents where patients can have, you know, massive tumors, uh, and, uh, and that, that if you, if you use the right chemotherapeutic agent, you can shrink that tumor. You can get rid of that. That can be life-saving. There are plenty of examples of that. Um, you know, certain of our antibiotics uh, that would otherwise cause sepsis, overwhelming infection, et cetera. Yes. My message here, and I think I'm glad you raised that because uh, I think it's a, a, an important point. It's not, nihilistic. It's not, you can't take anything at any time or you can't have a medical procedure at any time. That's not what this is, but it's just being aware of actually, you know, what you're consuming and always asking the question. Sometimes when patients ask that question, is this safe for me? Is this effective? Is this going to provide a health benefit? The answer is yes. The answer is yes. And so that's the, you know, the time to use that drug. And there's a bunch that will come to mind, you know, for that, uh, whether it's treating an infectious disease. I've seen patients throughout my career get great benefit from, you know, from medications. Patients with severe pyelonephritis, severe kidney infection in pregnancy who will improve rapidly by being on the right antibiotic. It gets rid of the infection for them, you know, can be life-saving. Life um, we use magnesium sulfate all the time in obstetrics to prevent women from preeclampsia from having seizures. That's a commonly used agent that we use. Uh, it's been shown to be um, effective, highly effective in preventing preeclamptic women from going on to have eclamptic seizures. The chemotherapeutic agents I, I mentioned, and there are others as well. So absolutely those uh those those are out there and, and i think it's a good it's i'm glad you raised that point yeah are, are there any particular drugs um like in, in your field very specifically 
that you think have been by far a net positive and have like revolutionized your field? For revolutionizing obstetrics with medications, I mean, the main ones that we use that have shown benefit um, uh, for moms, we use, for example, if a mom is going to deliver early, um, we'll use betamethasone on her, um, which has shown benefit if the babies uh, are delivered early. Uh, it's an interesting story, actually, because... Um, uh, it's 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 something that we give to pregnant women who will deliver early, and it's been shown to have a benefit in terms of survival. If the baby's born, for example, at 28 weeks, 26 weeks, something like that, we'll use betamethasone, uh, give a course of that. But it's an interesting story because what's happened is that over time, folks have tried to study it more and use it more and even at increasing gestational ages. And it looks now that we've studied it more that can actually have a harmful effect if you're using it too late. It can have an effect on the developing fetal brain. So again, it's just an example of the importance of trying to balance out risks and benefits and really ask the question about what the effects of the drugs are. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Well, uh, Dr. Urato, that's been uh, uh, pretty interesting uh, two and a half hours. I'm sure the li li listeners and readers have been on, uh, on an interesting ride. I'm sure they've learned many, many things that they didn't know before. Uh, and then that you know may have real world uh, implications for them, whether there are any mothers listening or any fathers or younger people like myself who, who need this information. I think this is very, very important. Uh, and I greatly appreciate your voice and your ability to articulate these very complicated topics uh, yeah, in a very nuanced and interesting way. So thank you. Yeah, you're very welcome. I appreciate your having me on and I appreciate the work you do on this, getting the word out to people again, informing people. Yeah, I think it's I think it's great. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Is, is there anything that you want to promote or any um, uh, anywhere where people may find you, a <laughs> website, a book or anything like that? I don't have anything to sell. You any vaccines, any drugs? I need to come up with something here. No, but yeah. if you want to find me, I try to put out, I'm, I'm a full-time clinician. I'm a busy full-time clinician taking care of pregnant right. women in my community. Yeah. So I try to do as much as I can putting out information on this. You can find me on Twitter at Adam Urato one. Um, I try to tweet regularly. I apologize to people. I'm not great about responding to comments and things like that. Um, it's just been challenging for me. Um, and then one other comment I have to make here, because a couple of people have raised this on Twitter and said, well, you know, you're always talking about chemicals have consequences, but isn't water a chemical? When I'm referring to chemical, I'm referring yeah. to that in the general term that we use. Like when someone says there's been a chemical spill, we don't expect when someone says there's been a, be careful, there's a chemical spill over there. We don't expect to find just water. So when I use that term that chemicals have consequences, I'm using that to refer to synthetic chemical compounds. I understand that things are chemicals like, like water and, 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 and other such things. So I'm referring specifically to that. Um, and again, I apologize to people on Twitter that I don't get back to. It's, it's more a function of my, um, of my, uh, uh, the rest of my life and my schedule, but, yeah, yeah. um, but, but that's where you can find me at Adam Urato one yeah. and, um, and putting out information on this stuff. Yeah. 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 Go give Adam a follow. I think, uh, you won't regret it. Um, uh, one follow up on the chemicals though, um, for chemicals, like do you, would you categorize like potassium, magnesium, magnesium, or various vitamins in that category as well? 
Uh, so I don't, those aren't synthetic chemical compounds for me in the same way. So okay. there's chemicals in anything that we're ingesting. You've got like, you know, you, you eat an orange, these things, there's, there's chemicals there. That, that's, that's the, you know, the building blocks of life. But what I'm referring to about by synthetic chemical compounds are things that are being manufactured and not found naturally occurring in nature. So humans developed through evolution. If you go back hundreds of years, thousands of years before you started to have chemical manufacturing facilities, what you're finding are natural chemicals. There's chemicals all over them. Like that's, I mean, that's, you know, the, the building blocks of life or whatnot. But what I'm referring to are the chemical compounds that are coming out of synthetic chemical manufacturing facilities. Mm-hmm. So things okay. like magnesium is a naturally occurring element, right. potassium, right. these are naturally occurring elements. And so we've got those in our body naturally. You go back through evolution, through fetal development, going all the way back, you, you've got exposure to those things. That, that's not what I'm referring to. Right, right. But, but obviously those chemicals can have consequences as well, right? Like uh, magnesium has become more and more popular in the fitness community for supplementation. Um, but one of the side effects of, of taking too much magnesium, which some people I know have had is like diarrhea, digestive upset, etc. Right. So th- there are consequences for other chemicals too, and especially when you get into supplements. Uh, you got to be careful about what you're taking and what the the consequences are for Ab- various supplements. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Even something like, I mean, we're, we're kind of breaking it down to the basics now, but even something like water, you can get, yeah. you, if people can get polydip, call it polydipsia, you can be drinking or ingesting too much free water. It can lower your sodium. You can have consequences from that. So that, that's absolutely right. But typically when I'm referring to fetal development, I'm not referring to moms drinking water. I'm referring to the, uh, right. the synthetic right. compounds. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And- Actually, I, I know I know we said we were going to go, but now I'm just I'm in the topic suddenly. You, we're talking we're talking about chemicals. Is, is, is there anything noteworthy on your radar in terms of you know when a mom is pregnant? Um, any any particular vitamins that you're particularly looking at? Specific biomarkers like whether it's magnesium or vitamin A or protein or something in particular that you find uh, there, there's a higher rate of deficiency in or something like that. Yeah, people are studying this now. They try to tease that out, but it's not on most basic prenatal panels. So when moms come in, we don't do an entire vitamin and mineral panel typically looking for those things. We're seeing a lot of vitamin um, D deficiency in the population, but what to do about that? In pre- so vitamin D is the one that comes up all the time. What to do about that in pregnancy is a little bit uncertain. There is a link. There is an association between vitamin D deficiency and some poor obstetrical outcomes, higher rates of some complications, but whether supplementation can make a difference for that is a little bit uncertain. So I think for something like that, patients just need to be careful about not over-supplementing. We typically say like a thousand international units is fine. You want to be careful about avoiding the big whopping doses of that. But that's the main one that people Sorry, will do. A, a, a vitamin D we're talking about? A vitamin D. How you, yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. yeah. From what I understand, vitamin D is fairly safe to take when you're reaching the thousands of IUDs. It's, it's, a, it's a pretty well-tolerated uh, supplement to take. Yeah, I think we just worry in pregnancy again about unknown effects with sort of massive dose or massive supplementation. There has been trouble with that, right. for example, with vitamin A. Vitamin A over supplementation can cause problems in pregnancy. So I usually just recommend for those things for pregnant women to just have a good healthy diet. A basic prenatal vitamin is usually you know almost what almost women need. Right. Gotcha. All right. Well, once the water, once the water yeah. runs out, I'm gonna be. <laughs> <laughs> he's, he's holding a glass of water, and there's a, a couple, couple of drops left. I think. 
All right, man. Thanks. Appreciate it. This was a pleasure. We'll stay in touch. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for your work. Bye. All right. Just keep your screen on.